The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Emmanuel David. Though this piece of shit hasn't gone down in the historical record like other more notable cult leaders. He's not your Jim Jones, not your David Koresh. He was a delusional and destructive zealot, just like those other guys were. Emmanuel David was born in the late 1930s to seemingly normal parents, had what uh, may have been a great childhood. And then not long after converting to Mormonism as a young adult, he started embracing its teachings with a zeal that was off-putting to many of his fellow members. Emmanuel David, born Charles Bruce Longo, would soon twist and warp the teachings of his new religion into thinking he should be the church leader. And then the LDS church would excommunicate him for that. And then Emmanuel David created his own church, went off to live on a communal compound where a group of people, including his wife, Rachel, and their seven children would worship him as a god. In true cult leader fashion, he gave his followers biblical names and tricked them into giving him money while they all waited for the U.S. government and the LDS church to collapse and then for Emmanuel to rise up out of the ashes and lead a new church, which of course never happened. And then it all came to an end in 1978, at least for Emmanuel David and his family in a very dramatic and horrifying way. Time for another story today about a delusional and power-hungry and manipulative meat sack and the people who followed him. We'll also get into some of the fringier aspects of Mormonism's theological beginnings and meet some other fundamentalists who were just as crazy, if not crazier, than Emmanuel. Going over a lot of very wild and interesting history today on a messianic, have you heard the good news? Run away from these people as fast as you can edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday and hail Nimrod meat sacks. Work and wait, it is time for Time Suck. Time for the cult of the curious to meet back up. I'm Dan Cummins, prophet of Nimrod, the master sucker, cult curator, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, I love you, Lucifina. Mild communist trigger alert today, good boy Bojangles, and let her rip, Triple M. 
Got an awesome Crafting with Edmund t-shirt and crew neck sweatshirt in the shop at badmagicmerch.com today. Uh, so fucked up. And so awesome, mother! Super cool design that you don't even have to be familiar with this podcast to enjoy. Uh, thanks again for everyone checking out the new podcast, Incredible Feats, and for checking out Is We Dumb? Uh, both podcasts doing really well right now, and I'm very grateful. And uh, thanks for checking out uh, Scared to Death as well. A lot more people coming over and listening to that podcast. It's been it's been a lot of fun podcasting here in 2020 uh, for us here at Bad Magic Productions. And that's it for the announcements today. Just got to them quick. And now for our feature presentation. Cult, cult, cult. Here at Time Suck, uh, we've been assembling quite a little collection of cults over the past few years. I love it. What a fascinating look they provide into the human psyche, into how certain people amass power, into just what kind of crazy shit the right or wrong leader or group of leaders can get seemingly intelligent people to do. Studying cults over the last several years has definitely influenced just the way I see the world around me. I see cult-like behavior exhibited uh, all over the place. For example, in politics, the way some people choose to follow certain politicians seems to be very cult-like to me. Their cult leader can do no wrong. Their followers seem blissfully and mind-numbingly unaware of their cult leader's faults, no matter how glaring and painfully obvious those faults may appear to be to others. I see cult-like behavior even in the world of professional sports. Some people root for teams. Others seem to almost worship them or worship certain athletes within them. Right? There are fans, and then there are cult-like followers who will quite literally cry when their team loses, you know, literally jump and squeal with joy when the team wins truly furious at those who prefer their team's rival. Now, some people do all of that out of passion, just passion, I know. Just passion displayed by an emotional person uh, who really likes to get into things, fine. But other people seem to uh, have elevated their passion to a a type of worship, a type of cult-like devotion. I see cult-like behavior displayed within all kinds of belief systems. One person may be a media pundit or a popular social media personality spouts an extremely self-assured ideology that seems to me to be pretty loosey-goosey. When it comes to an understanding of the facts uh, regarding whatever they're ranting and raving and pontificating about, but their fans slash believers seem to worship all their information as gospel, unquestionable truth. If you start looking for it, you can find cult mentality all around you. Here on The Suck, we've looked into at least nine cults prior to this one. We've covered the uh, messianic cults in which followers believe that person, uh, the person they're following is a type of messiah. Think of David Koresh's Branch Davidians. Uh, Yahweh Ben Yahweh's Nation of Yahweh, Tony and Susan Alamo, even the tiny and incredibly strange Children of Thunder, covered a UFO-related cult, Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gate, a cult that became a doomsday cult. We've looked into a, a few new-agey sex cults like the Children of God and the Source family. We've covered complicated, continually transforming and convoluted belief-having doomsday cults like the Order of the Solar Temple and Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And we've touched on others. And there are so many we have yet to talk about. There are active cults all over the world, many of them doing a lot of super weird shit right now. Some we know about, undoubtedly many others we don't know about uh, that we'll find out about later, uh, sometimes tragically. Uh, The world has always had at least a handful of people who actually believe they have, or at least who claim to believe they have uh, all of the important answers, right? They know who God is for sure. Just look into their wide and crazy eyes and get a feel for how confident they are. And who is God? Uh, usually they are. Or they will uh, reveal that they are very soon. Rare for the cult leader to open up, you know, announcing their God. Rare for them to kick things off with that. Uh, they tend to like to start by saying uh, they have God's ear. You know, for the moment, at the very least, they have the inside track to reaching God. You know, they and they alone are God's maybe right-hand man. 
And because they are God or closely associated with God, they know uh, how to not just live forever, but how to live forever similarly to how you are living now. Rest easy. Your precious ego isn't going anywhere. If you follow them, you get to keep being you, but be way more powerful. Never have to live in strife or sorrow ever again. If, and this is a big if, you know, you just stick with them. You can't leave them. You have to help them. Maybe give them your wife. Maybe give them all your earthly possessions. Keep giving them your paycheck. But so worth it because bye-bye, mortal coil. Suck it, Grim Reaper. I'm with David now and old Dave tells me he's got it all figured out. We're all gonna live forever. You just totally devote yourself to the leader and shut off all of your critical thinking skills and be like a child to the role of their father. You don't have to worry about death or damnation or any of the shit you've been stressed about. Fuck your mortgage, fuck your career, fuck your friends and family in many cases. Doesn't matter anymore. What a load off your shoulders. And I did say they play the role of father instead of mother or parent. Almost always a dude leading the cult. Almost always the male ego. Susan Alamo, uh, a recent exception, but even with her cult, uh, once she died, her husband, Tony, uh, big dicked things a lot further along than she ever did. Oh, cults, will I ever get bored by you? I hope not. Will you ever go away? I hope so, uh, but I highly doubt it. Uh, today, we explore a cult I find very entertaining. We're adding another uh, messianic cult to our collection. Sorry if I mispronounced that word going forward. It's a, well, my brain just doesn't settle on. Uh, the Emmanuel David cult. This still barely alive, probably cult. Um, not probably isn't probably a cult. Probably isn't probably barely alive. Uh, you'll, that'll make sense as we go through here, uh, things towards the end of the episode. But they never got very big and things would end real, real badly for, for many of the key members. Uh, it's one of the more obscure cults we've sucked, kind of like the Children of Thunder. And I picked it because I just found it to be an incredibly strange and interesting story. Uh, Emmanuel David, the leader and the man from whom the Emmanuel David cult got its name was a former LDS missionary who was excommunicated from the church in 1969 for essentially trying to replace it or at least restructure it with him, of course, as the new head, the new prophet slash leader. And wanting to do that, just like, uh, you know, Children of Thunder cult leader Glenn Helzer wanted to do, myth, if you remember that episode, uh, you know, they got Emmanuel kicked out of the LDS church, which makes sense. Uh, unless they've appointed you to be the leader, churches in general really, really don't like it when you tell them that you're the new leader. It's like one of their least favorite things. If you're a sinner, that's okay. That's fine. That's, that's good, actually, right? You're giving them something to work with, something to fix. But you start claiming you know more about God than they do. Oh, get the fuck out, devil. Many, many people have died throughout history for doing exactly that. Many a heretic has been burned on a stake or hanged at the gallows for claiming to know more about God than their church. Pretty sure a fair amount of current religious leaders around the world wouldn't mind uh, burning those who stridently disagree with them alive. Hell, I, I wouldn't mind uh, doing that in moments. <laughs> and I'm sure some people wanted to burn Emmanuel David, but they didn't, they just kicked him out. Before we get into Emmanuel's tale, we need to take a second look at the origins of Mormonism. Though we've already covered Mormonism in detail almost exactly a year ago, September of 2019, we need to revisit that religion a bit today because it's the one this strange little cult morphed out of. Uh, gonna go over some of the more controversial practices and beliefs of early Mormonism, practices and beliefs Emmanuel uh, you know, many of these beliefs he would adopt and reinstate in his cult. Not all of them, but they're all important to understand. Then we'll delve into the Emmanuel David family cult fully, follow it, uh, you know, through to its tragic near end, find out all we can about its present state of operation. As I said moments ago, moments ago, before he was excommunicated, Emmanuel David was a devout Mormon. And as we already covered once before here on Time Suck, the Mormon church called the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, began in 1823 when Joseph Smith Jr. claimed that he had visited with God and Jesus Christ in upstate New York. And then uh, Smith later translated the Book of Mormon from a set of gold tablets he claimed to have received from an angel named Moroni. 
tablets that would have weighed 200 pounds that he allegedly picked up and ran with, uh, you know, through the forest, stiff arming would-be robbers, jumping over fallen trees, that kind of stuff, the night he received them. Too bad God can't give powers like that to a few members of my fantasy football team this year. I, I need another RB1 to win the paid league I'm in. Uh, Smith officially organized the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints on April 6th, 1830. Beginning during a period of great social experimentation in America, the church instituted several novel uh, social programs, which distinguished it from a mainstream American society, such as polygamy, and some others we'll get to in a moment. Since many of these practices and beliefs were at odds with society at large, it was almost inevitable that the Latter-day Saints would find some trouble, and they did. As Mormons looked for their permanent home, they moved west and clashed with various groups of Gentiles in Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois, then in Utah. These Gentiles had the support of the U.S. government and army, while the Mormons did not. Looking back, pretty impressive that this now sizable religion survived some of its early clashes. Even in Utah, the Mormons were strongly persecuted for the practice of polygamy by taking multiple wives, uh, found themselves in open rebellion against the U.S. government. 15th U.S. President James Buchanan went so far as to send the army in an attempt to enforce U.S. law amongst the Mormons in 1857 and 1858. Uh, random trivia, President Buchanan has either been ranked as the very worst president in U.S. history or near the bottom consistently for over 150 years. He's most famous for helping push the country into civil war. Uh, sending the army to Utah in many's eyes was basically the best, most notable thing he ever did. And not surprisingly, in many Mormons' eyes, it was the worst thing he ever did. Uh, Buchanan was another in what was already becoming a long line of persecutors back in 18. 57 and 1858. Knowing about how Mormons have been persecuted is key to understanding how certain fundamentalist Mormons regard the outside world. While almost all Mormons in Utah feel to some degree that their ancestors were persecuted for their beliefs, the fundamentalist uh, Mormons really uh, feel persecuted. Not only were their ancestors persecuted for their beliefs, but their ancestors were and currently still are, they currently still are, persecuted by Gentiles and mainstream Mormons alike for refusing to abandon practices like polygamy. And oftentimes, this persecution can cause extremists to double down on their beliefs, right? If a fringe religious group believes that God wants, for example, uh, it's men to take multiple wives, that doing so is God's wish, then anyone trying to interfere with that is interfering with God's wish. And then by definition, they are aligned with the great adversary, i.e. the devil. And now the persecuted polygamous group can begin to see the government and mainstream Mormons in this example as all being in cahoots with Satan. This can quickly lead to feeling like one is surrounded by the devil. And who wants to be interacting with the devil all the time? So what do fundamentalist uh, believers do? Well, in a cult, they often retreat away from society, the society they view as evil, and they isolate themselves. They hide from all the perceived evil in the world. In Christian derivative cults, they tend to go wait for the end times in isolation, to wait for Christ to return and deliver them from all this evil around them. They separate themselves from the temptations of the great deceiver so that he doesn't trick them out of their souls as well. When a group of believers has gone to this uh, place intellectually, it can be really, really hard to deprogram them. The more aggressively you push them to change their beliefs, to give up polygamy, for example, the more you feed into their, into their belief, into their vision of you having the devil's interest in mind, of you being part of an evil persecution. I hope all that makes sense. I rewrote that little diatribe several times in my notes, try and clearly articulate what, which makes, uh, or what makes perfect sense in my head, but it still feels like it took too many words to communicate. Uh, in the beginning of the formation of their faith, persecution went a long ways towards bonding early Mormons firmly in some of their initial beliefs, beliefs that as time went on, uh, some of the more, more fanatical believers, fundamentalist believers, had a real hard time letting go of. And this early history of polygamy is why polygamy keeps popping up today amongst fringe fundamentalist Mormon groups. 
Uh, church leaders began the practice of polygamy not long after the church was organized. Some accounts argue that Joseph Smith began experimenting with polygamy as early as 1831. Smith's revelation on plural marriage was not written down until 1843, but its early verses suggest that part of it emerged from Joseph Smith's study of the Old Testament in 1831. Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, Smith's ninth wife, a woman who would also later become one of Brigham Young's wives after Smith died, uh, claimed that Smith had a private conversation with her in 1831 about having her become one of his wives when she was only 12. Uh, he was 26. So yikes, super yikes. Uh, going to be hard to eradicate the problem of polygamy in your religion when less than two centuries earlier, your leader was taking child brides. Uh, to be fair to Smith, I do feel the need to point out women did get married when they were just girls all the time to much older men back then in ways that would be blatantly criminal now, but were normal back then. Not usually 12, uh, but they didn't get married when she was 12. Uh, but sadly, 12, uh, also not that unusual, very different times in so many ways. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary records the first printed instance of the phrase child bride in 1843. A search of American newspapers from the 19th century reveals its regular use beginning only in the 1870s and 1880s. Why wasn't that term used uh, before? Not because marriages to children were not happening, actually quite the opposite. They were happening. They were just happening so often and it was seemingly uh, so unremarkable and normalized that no one thought to give the practice any kind of pejorative term. Uh, regardless of when the practice of polygamy started, by the time Joseph Smith definitely informed the elders of his revelation regarding the practice of polygamy in 1843, clear that Smith was married to at least seven women. After 1843, the practice of polygamy amongst church elders became a fairly common practice, although the church did not officially sanction the practice until the General Church Conference of 1852. And this public declaration was generally not well received by non-Mormons across America. It drew immediate criticism and outrage outside of, I imagine, a few especially horny dudes who were probably like, fuck yeah, finally, woo! <laughs> oh, oh, oh shit, oh, sorry. I mean, uh, okay, boo, so high, so stupid. <laughs> I love my wife, I never want my penis to ever touch another vagina. <laughs> no way, gross, <laughs> right? Uh, at its 1856 national convention, in Philadelphia, the Republican Party quickly tailored its platform in opposition to the twin relics of barbarism, and they deemed those twin relics to be polygamy and slavery. It shows how hot of a topic this was in the days leading up to the Civil War. The Democrats of the day, not wishing to imply support of polygamy by their support of slavery, became just as vehement as their political opponents in denouncing the Mormon institution of polygamy. Uh, early Mormons getting it from both sides, national news, most living in both the uh, northern and southern states saw the practice as abhorrent. So early Mormons getting it from all sides. Even people who owned slaves were like, slavery is obviously totally cool and uh, just, uh, I don't understand why some people get so worked up about owning other human beings, but polygamy, that is clearly the work of Satan himself. Uh, shortly after President Buchanan entered the White House in 1857, largely due to the pra uh, public practice of polygamy, he became convinced that the Mormons were in a state of open rebellion against the government and that they wouldn't accept adhering to U.S. laws unless forced to. So he sent in the army under the command of Albert Sidney Johnson. Johnston. Gotta get that T in there. A man who would later become a noted Confederate general to Utah. And the Mormons did not prepare to just lay down and surrender when they heard that the army was coming. They undoubtedly recalled the 1838 Missouri Executive Order 44, a.k.a. the Mormon Extermination Order, that Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs had issued a fall, uh, following a clash between Mormons and a Missouri state militia unit. Boggs declared 
the Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Their outrages are beyond all description. Seventeen Mormons would be killed in a vigilante action at a settlement called Hans Mill in Missouri. Mormons then moved to Illinois, founding the town of Nauvoo. There in 1840, under a charter, they gave the city council, which Smith controlled, authority over local courts and militia. This settlement grew to about 15,000 people, making it the biggest population center in the state for a little while. And then in 1844, authorities jailed Smith in the town of Carthage after he destroyed a Nauvoo newspaper that alleged he was mismanaging the town and had more than one wife, which, to be fair, he had done. In a raid on the jail, an anti-Mormon mob then shot the church founder to death. He was only 38 years old. The early Mormons had absolutely been persecuted out of both Missouri and Illinois now. Angry mobs had for sure come for them. And in a few instances, when they hadn't properly defended themselves, they'd been killed by people in angry mobs. In her 1945 biography of Joseph Smith, historian Fawn Brody wrote, few episodes in American religious history parallel the barbarism of the anti-Mormon persecutions. So when Buchanan sent the military after them, the Utah Mormons had flashbacks of these earlier attacks and they refortified their militia, conducted small-scale guerrilla warfare against the army as it made its way to Utah in 1857. They also were definitely considering standing up to the U.S. government uh, to the point of creating their own nation. That was also part of their motivation. Historian David Bigler, author of Forgotten Kingdom, the Mormon Theocracy of the American West, 1847 to 1896, says the buildup to this war in the late 1850s, Mormons believed that the world would end within their lifetimes. They believed the forefathers who wrote the American Constitution had been inspired by God to establish a place where his kingdom would be restored to power, the Mormons believed their own kingdom would ultimately have dominion over all of the United States. At the same time, the American nation was pursuing a manifest destiny to extend its domain westward all the way to the Pacific, and the continent just was not big enough to accommodate both of these belief systems. Blood spilled in what became known as the Utah War. In September of 1857, in a clash uh, that would become known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre between other settlers traveling in the Baker Fancher wagon train, in the Nauvoo Legion, the name for Utah's Mormon militia at the time, 120 to 140 members of that wagon train were killed. And while an in-depth investigation of the incident would require more time than today's topic warrants, it appears that Brigham Young tried to blame this incident on local American Indians, and the men who did the killing were not held accountable for their actions outside of one man, Major John D. Lee, a Mormon who was finally executed for uh, these killings in 1874. So many years later, at the age of 65, and he died claiming to be a scapegoat for the killings. He stated that the church had authorized. John had been an LDS member who at one point had 19 wives and who fathered 67 children. 67. No way he remembered all their names. For sure, a couple of Elijahs were mixed up with some Zorums. Uh, looking back now, does it seem like early Mormons were the aggressors in this confrontation? It does. But looking at it from their perspective, I can't blame them. They thought God had called on them to form a new nation. They had to defend it. Many Mormon settlers saw the Utah War as trying to defend their new land and more importantly, their faith from non-Mormon persecutors hell-bent on destroying their religion and taking what was, uh, what was to be their new nation away from them. When Brigham and early church, other early church leaders realized they were not going to be able to win a war against the U.S. Army, an agreement between the U.S. government and the early church finally led to the acceptance of Buchanan's appointee as a governor. And in return, Mormons were allowed to continue practicing polygamy for a while, uh, mostly because the Civil War was looming and the government, uh, you know, they had more important shit to deal with. They'd get back to polygamy later, which they did. Uh, polygamy continued unabated during the course of the Civil War, with most of the nation's attention focused on the issue, of course, of slavery. 
Once the war ended, the popular sentiment to end polygamy returned. Federal government attempts to stop the practice of polygamy continued throughout the 1870s and into the 1880s. Under the provisions of the Edmonds Act and the Edmonds-Tucker Act, Mormons were kept from voting because of their polygamy. Their wives and children were declared illegitimate, and the property of the church was even confiscated at one point due to a refusal to abandon polygamy and other practices not in accordance with U.S. law. Many Mormon leaders were jailed or had to go into hiding. In response to such intense persecution, late 19th century Mormon president and living prophet Wilford Woodruff signed the Woodruff Manifesto under duress in 1890, putting an official end to the church's practice of polygamy, at least publicly. Six years later, Utah became a state which made polygamy even harder to pull off. The federal government now more involved in their affairs. According to historical records, the practice of polygamy continued within the church in secret and was even somewhat common right up until the 1930s. And as to be expected, many members in the early years of the 20th century did not want to practice polygamy secretly. They did not accept the Woodruff Manifesto. And a lot of these members became Mormon fundamentalists and continued practicing polygamy under the scrutiny of both federal and church officials, forming their own splinter groups and churches. Uh, Some groups you could definitely call cults. When the church leaders began to realize the perception of polygamy carried out by these splinter groups, these cults was greatly hurting the public image of the church at large in the 30s and 40s. And then a lot of non-Mormons weren't really doing a very good job of doing their due diligence to distinguish between mainstream Mormons and their fundamentalist counterparts. But they were all just getting kind of lumped in together. The mainstream church's leaders began to denounce the practice more strongly. Under the leadership of J. Reuben Clark, counselor to longtime church president uh, Heber J. Grant, who led from 1918 to 1945, the church instituted a program of forcing Mormon men to sign loyalty oaths beginning in 1933, stating that they would denounce the advocacy and practice of plural marriage, and that I myself am not living in such alleged marriage in such a alleged marriage relationship. Those who refused to sign this were immediately excommunicated. Uh, this action definitely cut down on the number of polygamists, but the fight against polygamy still was far from over. Around 1940, because of continued polygamy, Clark began to direct loyal priesthood leaders to spy on people attending meetings at houses of known fundamentalists. He also encouraged the Salt Lake City librarian to remove fundamentalist literature from the library. He instructed the Salt Lake City postmaster to prohibit all fundamentalist mailings, and he encouraged the criminal prosecution of fundamentalists. This harsh treatment of fundamentalists continued throughout the 1940s and 1950s, culminating in the Short Creek Raid of 1953. Arizona Governor Howard Pyle ordered more than 100 law enforcement officers to place the fundamentalist community of Short Creek sprawled across the Utah-Arizona border under martial law. Pyle attempted to have the town's leaders arrested, and the incident created national outrage of a violation of civil rights, except in Utah, where ironically, uh, wanting more mainstream American acceptance, the Mormon church supported the law enforcement officers' efforts 100%. Everybody, a lot of other people were worked up about religious freedom, but uh, the Mormon church was like, nah, fucking get them, get them out of there. Uh, Today, the Short Creek community divided into the towns of Colorado City, Arizona, and Hilldale, Utah, and polygamy there continues. Uh, until 19, or until, excuse me, until 2007, the United Effort Plan Trust, a fundamentalist real estate trust, essentially owned both of these communities. Still seems to own a large portion of the land in the area. And both towns with a combined population of around 8,000 appear to still be primarily controlled by fundamentalist sects today. Uh, one of the most notorious and still active fundamentalist polygamous groups is based in this area, uh, technically in Hilldale, Utah, the FLDS the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We covered this group a bit, and uh, and their currently incarcerated leader, massive piece of shit, 
uh, piece of shit, Warren Jeffs in the Mormonism FLDS suck. Won't go into his entire shitty deal all over again here, but this uh, messianic pile of cult-leading garbage was convicted of sexually assaulting two kids, believed to have sexually assaulted at least 26 women and girls, the youngest of whom was only eight when it began, and the 64-year-old who was arrested in 2006 will die in prison. Warren Jeffs loves polygamy so much. When his father, Rulon Jeffs, who was the president of the FLDS church, died in 1986, he told high-ranking FLDS officials, I won't say much, but I will say this. Hands off my father's wives. When addressing his father's widows, he said, you women will live as if father is still alive and in the next room. Yeah. Within a week, he had married all but two of his father's wives. One refused to marry Jeffs and was subsequently prohibited from ever marrying again while the other Rebecca Wall fled the FLDS compound. That's so fucking creepy to take your dad's wives when your dad dies. Imagine what kind of seriously disturbing dirty talk uh, he could be having with him, right? Mm, oh, you like that? Is that hard enough for you? My fucking you as hard as my dad did? Who's your daddy? Me or my daddy? So creepy. Uh, as the sole individual in the FLDS church with the authority to perform marriages, Jeffs was responsible for assigning wives to husbands. He also had the authority to discipline male church members by reassigning their wives, children, and homes to another man. Man, you thought 2020 had been shitty to you. Imagine, imagine if you had to give your family over to a neighbor like one of these type cults. <laughs> How much that would fuck up your year. Oh my God. Hey, Warren, yeah, it is a lovely day we're having. Couldn't ask for better weather. Uh-huh. Sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'd love to come over for a barbecue. Uh, it'd be nice to see my <laughs> nice to see my former wife. <laughs> now, shares shares your bed. So so blessed. So blessed. And the kids, get to see them. The kids, you know, were once mine, but now yours to to care for. <laughs> Under his eye. Blessed be the fruit. <laughs> May the Lord open your fucking skull with a hatchet, so I can watch your brain spill it to the lawn. What was what was that? No, I had nothing. Just mumbling to myself. See, see you tomorrow then. Uh, now that we've established a long-standing tradition of polygamy, introduced by early Mormon leaders and then carried out by the leaders of the Mormon fundamentalist sects, a tradition Emmanuel uh, David will not participate in, but it is important to understand th that there is this history of, of people you know, holding on to early practices of the church and then leaving because of them. Uh, and some of these beliefs we're going to go into will be some of the ones that he would uh, you know, resurrect and bring into his own cult. Uh, such as the Gathering of the Saints. The Gathering of the Saints was created by the church leaders while the Mormons were still living in Kirkland, Ohio in the 1830s. Going forward, we'll see this a little bit. He would, he would kind of do something similar when you have his archangels. Uh, church leaders wanted to bring all Mormons to Zion, the mythical homeland of the Mormon faith. And so they dispatched Mormons to Europe, Canada, South America. The new members from abroad encouraged to congregate with the main body of the church and prepare for the coming of Christ, which they believed was imminent. Uh, as Mormons moved west, the gathering policy continued. Members of the Mormon faith were expected to congregate in one area, which eventually became Salt Lake City. But then in 1893, church leaders noticed uh, high levels of unemployment in Salt Lake City as new converts just kept moving there, uh, you know, and moving there, only to find a lack of professional opportunities and a lagging infrastructure. Church leaders now began using new converts to, rem or encouraging, excuse me, new converts to remain in their homelands and grow the church abroad, a policy that clearly worked as the church is now uh, a growing worldwide religion with an estimated 15 million total members. Uh, well, the fundamentalists disagreed with bringing these gatherings to an end. They believed and continue to believe that the return of Christ is imminent and Mormons need to gather and prepare for his return. Uh, they believe that communities should be close-knit, self-sufficient, have few ties to the outside world, further paving the way for 
you know, fundamentalist isolation, you know, based communities. They isolate to avoid persecution and to prepare for Christ's return. And the isolation of fundamentalist groups, as we've also seen in other cults, goes a long way to create a sense of otherness. According to Stuart Wright, professor of sociology at Lamar University, an isolated religious group's followers can get to a point where members are not afraid to die for their beliefs, convinced that their acts of religious conviction can be defined as martyrdom, earning them spiritual rewards. A group separated from mainstream society can bake in opposition towards the rest of society and to their very sense of self. They can reach a point in their ideology where they believe that if they let in outsiders, their entire purpose becomes destroyed, leading to violence when they believe that their group may be threatened. Uh, Following up on this, let's talk about the law of consecration and the united order. Early doctrines of Joseph Smith's that led towards uh, more isolation amongst Mormon fundamentalist communities and cults. The law of consecration was a revelation received by Joseph Smith in 1831. It stipulated that all the property of the saints should be held in common and distributed that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants. So Mormons, though I doubt they would have defined themselves as such, were actually in many ways early communists. Easy, Bojangles, easy. I warned you. We all knew you'd hate that. Uh, The early church attempted to put the law of consecration into practice in the early 1830s, but they were largely unsuccessful, in part because of an economic downturn caused by the Panic of 1837, a national financial crisis in the U.S. that led to a major depression. Brigham Young attempted to implement the law of consecration under the auspices of a plan he termed the United Order on two separate occasions in the 1850s and 1870s with varying degrees of success. Uh, This economics, a system designed to create self-sufficiency amongst Mormons and isolate them from the Gentile economy, was ultimately abandoned as the economy of Utah became more and more integrated with the national U.S. economy. It was abandoned by mainstream Mormons. It was not abandoned by fundamentalists, by many of them. Fundamentalists uh, still believed in these teachings of Brigham Young and other early church leaders. They believed that the only true economic order was the United Order. You know, they would use a statement by Orson Pratt, one of the first Mormons, as part of their justification for believing that the law of consecration should continue to be practiced. Here is that statement, which which I shall read over the top of some organ music, which both seems uh, fitting and I think makes it more entertaining. The Lord said in that revelation that the principle, which he had revealed in relation to the properties of his church, must be carried out to the very letter upon the land of Zion. Those individuals who would not give heed to it, but sought to obtain their inheritances in an individual way by purchasing it themselves from the government, should have their names blotted out from the book of the names of the righteous. If their children pursued the same course, their names should be blotted out as well. They and their children should not be known in the book of the law of the Lord as being entitled to an inheritance among the saints in Zion. We find therefore the Lord drove out this people because we were unworthy to receive our inheritances by consecration as a people. We did not strictly comply with that which the Lord required. Neither did they comply in Kirkland. This ought to be an example for us who are living at a later period in the history of the church of the living God and who ought by this time to become thoroughly experienced in the law of God. Okay, easy to see the message here. Right, the reason things didn't go well in a few places early on was because they stopped following God's laws. One of which is that God wants them to live communally, isolate, stop fucking around with the Gentiles, right? Keep the money in house. Also, isn't it amazing how important music is, how important the uh, instrument or the instruments are when it comes to setting the tone of how the written word is received? Let me, let me illustrate this with some contrast. 
Uh, here's the beginning of that same piece <laughs> set uh, to the calliope instead of the uh, instead of the organ. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord said in the revelation that the principle which He had revealed in relation to the properties of His church must be carried out to the very letter upon the land of Zion. And those individuals who would not give heed to it, but sought to obtain their inheritances in an individual way, by pushing it themselves from the government, should have their names brought... Good God! Will you turn that off, Ezekiel? I can't take it! I should have never let you talk me into the trading our church organ in for Satan's bagpipes! Very different tone. Uh, not all fundamentalist groups practice the law of consecration, but several groups use modified forms. Uh, most notably, the Kingston Group, a.k.a. the Latter-day Church of Christ, a fundamentalist group based in Salt Lake with about 3,500 members, uh, operates a conglomerate worth, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, which group members required to transfer uh, all, or, and group members are required to transfer all personal property to this group. We'll talk about them at the very end of uh, today's suck. And in Colorado City, Arizona, and Hilldale, Utah, the land for the FLDS community there is held in that common trust I mentioned earlier, that United Effort Plan Trust. This is still happening in a lot of places. And like all Mormons, fundamentalists tend to tithe one-tenth of their earnings to their leaders, which makes the leadership of a fundamentalist group a potentially very lucrative situation, something Emmanuel David clearly understood very well. Uh, he definitely wanted a lot of money. He wanted, he wanted some of that sock money. The term sock money will make a, a lot more sense later. Uh, various splinter groups have implemented this law of consecration, a law that obviously puts a lot of pressure on its members to not leave the main group because their departure could cause a great deal of economic hardship. Members can end up feeling trapped because they can't leave without sacrificing their property and their assets once they've handed them over. Let's look at an example of this in action. Talk about the church of the firstborn on the Lamb of God. Scary and violent fundamentalist group. Not surprised. That's a, that's a scary ass church name. Welcome to the church of the firstborn on the land of God. Grab your goblet of blood and nourish thyself. Ah, sounds intense. Guess a lot of their sermons uh, were heavy on screaming about vengeance and light on cookies and refreshments. Uh, Alma Dyer, LeBaron, moved his family to Mexico in 1924 after being excommunicated from the LDS for practicing polygamy. Settling near Colonia Juarez, he raised a large family and established his own church, the church of the firstborn. Of his 11 children, his son, Irville, was one of the most religious, thriving in a Mormon household that centered on religion and their father's obsession with heavenly visions. A cult household fixated on heavenly visions? What could go wrong here? Uh, Erval LeBaron would listen carefully when God told him to take many wives and he would marry 13 women. He didn't want to, but you know, when God calls, you answer. Especially when he's like, listen, my son, I need you to get to fucking. One puss is not enough, my son. So saith the Lord. Uh, when God told him to have children, he had at least 50. Again, just following orders, you know, just doing what he had to do. After Alma died in 1951, Ervil's brother, Joel, broke away from the church their father founded and established his own polygamous church, the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times. God told him to fuck a bunch of ladies and also tell his brother and other relatives to go fuck themselves. There's still an estimated several hundred members of various splinter groups that splintered out of this splinter group around, by the way. Uh, the split was not well received by many in Joel's dad's church. The church was a family enterprise with various relatives serving in various leadership positions. Irville be became second in command of Brother Joel's church. Other brothers held other positions. But then eventually Irville uh, he got tired of being second in command. He challenged Joel's leadership over the matter of blood atonement, a policy I'll describe in a lot more detail soon. And in the late 60s, Irville began his own church, the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God. 
And it's strongly believed that Ervil also challenged his brother, perhaps mostly challenged his brother because he wanted all that law of consecration money that came with controlling the cult's finances. In August of uh, uh, 1972, followers of Ervil Moral LeBaron murdered Joel in a bid to establish Ervil as the leader of both the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times. Should have combined both titles into the worst, longest church name ever. Welcome to the church of the firstborn of the fullness of the times on the land of the God. Uh, when Ervil tried to seize control, some of Joel's followers went to the authorities to have him charged with murder, and then a civil war broke out. Ervil proceeded to direct his followers to murder more than 30 other opposing polygamists and polygamist group members. Before LeBaron died in the Utah State Penitentiary in 1981, he wrote the Book of the New Covenants, which detailed a list of former followers who were also to die in the name of God. And then throughout this so fucked up, then throughout the 80s, children of LeBaron went on to murder several of these people in Dallas, Houston, Utah, and Mexico. By one expert's ex, uh, estimate, the group has committed 25 to 30 murders. <laughs> Investigators can only guess the total number of slains because the bodies of some of the presumed victims have never been found. And all these killings can be traced back in part to Joel LeBaron controlling a lot of cult money and Ervil wanting to have it instead. Crazy shit. Now let's talk about having God's ear, having that direct line to heaven. Emmanuel David, like Joel and Ervil's dad, Alma, would start his cult largely on the claim that he spoke with God, that God gave him revelations, visions. Many, many splinter groups have broken away from the Mormon church over the years, uh, have begun their exodus by claiming some version of, I should be in charge because I am the true living prophet of God. Where in Mormon scripture does this belief in the ability to be a modern living prophet come from? comes from personal revelation and heavenly visitations. The Mormon church began with a supposed personal visit from God and Jesus Christ and alleged visitations from heavenly personages were common occurrences in the early years of the church. Numerous stories of visits from angels, apostles of Jesus, even God himself graced the pages of church history. Members of the early church believed that personal revelation was a gift from God and that it came frequently when one kept the commandments and lived a righteous life. There are literally hundreds of accounts of how people were directed through numerous personal revelations. Early Mormons uh, also believed in living prophets. Uh, they still believe this. Actually, Mormons now believe that only their president is a living prophet. Uh, per the churchofjesuschrist.org, the official church website, we sustain the president of the church as prophet, seer, and revelator, the only person on earth who receives revelation to guide the entire church. Why can only the president be the true voice of God now, at least when it comes to how the church is supposed to be ran? Well, because letting anyone else speak for God in that way creates theological fucking chaos. Uh, you know, there's numerous examples in the early history of Utah where various groups broke away from the main body of the church to follow different prophets, and then little splinter groups continue to form in this way. Uh, this policy of anyone can be a prophet if they're really, really faithful and righteous and true is a great way to start a religion. Uh, also, a, uh, a terrible way to keep it going. You know, it's a great way to have a religion continually keep fracturing and mutating because anyone who wants to be the leader can just say, wait, no, he no, he doesn't speak for God. I, I do. No, I no, I have, I have the visions. Me. Right? And then they see how many members of the church they can pull into a new church where they get to be leader. And when the church abandoned the practice of polygamy, wouldn't you know it, a whole mess of new prophets started springing up. Weird. Uh, two of the most influential of the early polygamous leaders were Alma LeBaron, who we just talked about, and Joseph Muser, or Musser who was excommunicated in 1921. Both men, extremely devout, believed that they had received special keys from God, which instructed them to continue the practice of polygamy and other fundamentalist beliefs. 
These new fundamentalists believed firmly in the gifts of modern revelation and prophecy and held a firm faith that other worldly beings would continue to visit them on earth and instruct them in ways to keep the true and living church alive here on earth. Uh, now let's establish the theological justification for breaking the law that a cult leader like Emmanuel David uh, would do pretty casually. Uh, Emmanuel had no problem breaking the, the laws of man whenever it suited him. Let's talk about the laws of God and the laws of man. Uh, Joseph Smith planned the establishment of a true theocracy in Ohio, uh, in Ohio, in Ohio, and later in Missouri, a country within a country. Smith once declared that Mormons had religious sovereignty, meaning that Mormons can constituted a separate religious nation within the political entity of the United States and held that theocratic ethic, ethics, excuse me, meant that Mormons could ethically ignore the laws of the state when those laws were in conflict with the laws of God. Uh, and if you believe that you're a prophet, basically this means you have carte blanche to do whatever you want to do, regardless of the law, because your will is God's will and God's will trumps man's will. Boom, never ending loophole. Sounds pretty fucking sweet. I should try this. I should, I should tell local authorities that I'm Nimrod's prophet and that Nimrod wants me to do, I don't know, for example, a little target shooting in my backyard because that's more convenient for me. Nimrod doesn't care if a stray bullet takes out a neighbor. It's his will. Uh, Nimrod also would like me to take the property directly behind me and turn it into a guest house for friends and have a sweet infinity pool. And not done. Nimrod would like me to pay for all this by taking a few other neighbor's houses and selling them. And still not done. Nimrod would like me to uh, have a moat constructed around my new property, uh, turn my house into a, a castle, you know, big, big rock walls, big rock castle walls around the outside. And then Nimrod wants me to have dudes dressed up like uh, medieval knights wearing chainmail, who who will legally shoot flaming arrows out of crossbows at anyone who tries to uh, batter down my drawbridge until they are dead. So please do not do that. It angers Nimrod. I gotta say, I'm liking this new fucking plan. Uh, more and more by the second as I come up with it. Hail Nimrod, may your will be done. However many Cocker Spaniels must be stomped, sacrificed to please you, uh, they will be stomped. Sweet, sweet Nimrod. Uh, once the church started to ally itself more fully with the United States government, fundamentalists turned the early doctrine of religious sovereignty and theocratic ethics back on them claiming that the laws of God were more important than both the laws of the state and the new position of the church, the traitorous church. Any action these fundamentalists took were justified under these concepts that I just illustrated. A fairly recent example of a fundamentalist who resisted the government's laws in favor of what he interpreted to be God's laws was John Singer, much to his detriment. John Singer, born in New York City in 1932, was excommunicated in 1973 for constantly questioning Mormon doctrine according to church officials. He married his first wife, Vicki Lemon, in 1963, and her parents, uh, not happy. Uh, they said that Singer brainwashed her daughter, even tried to get their daughter committed to a mental health hospital to stop her from marrying him. On March 29th, 1973, the excommunicated fundamentalist pulled his five school-aged children out of the public school system to teach them himself when he objected to the worldly lessons, the satanic lessons his kids were receiving. The local school board allowed this, but when Singer and Vicki refused to submit their children to the school board for progress tests, Charges were pressed because you can teach your kids at home in America. You just can't have them not learn fucking anything useful without risking facing some legal consequences. Uh, Ron Robinson, whose job it was to bring Singer into court, uh, into a court hearing on the misdemeanor charges about his children's schooling, showed up at the Singer house unarmed on several occasions to ask Singer to voluntarily address his court case. And he refused. He didn't have time to deal with that shit. He was busy expanding his family, taking a second wife, Shirley Black, and her five children in early October of 1978. Singer felt persecuted. He felt as if he and his godly family and his two wives were under siege by the 
by the evil U.S. government. He installed wire covering over his windows to keep out tear gas. Should the sheriff's department decide to try and smoke him out. Then in January of 1979, he did get into a standoff with authorities and they did not use tear gas to try and smoke him out. Uh, but he was shot at. He was shot and killed during his attempted arrest when police feared that he would shoot one of them. And King's death would unleash a blood atonement. They're talking about blood atonements now. This is the story gets even crazier. In 1842, Joseph Smith received a series of revelations regarding the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. His goal was the establishment of a theocratic kingdom at Nauvoo, Illinois, where he'd be the king of Israel and the council of 50 would be the government structure around him. Uh, as part of the elaboration for this theocratic plan, Smith presented what would become known as the doctrine of blood atonement. It was a form of capital punishment. Smith decreed that people who committed particularly grievous acts against the Mormons would have to shed their blood to atone for the sins they had committed. Under his eye, may the Lord open. Blessed be the fruit. Basically, uh, he tried to uh, create a nation that would be eerily similar to Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, uh, numerous Handmaid's Tale? Handmaid's Tale? Ah, now, now I'm second-guessing myself. One of those, for sure. Uh, numerous early Mormons used this doctrine of blood atonement as justification for some violence they committed during their war against the Missourians. Orrin Porter Rockwell also used the concept of blood atonement as justification for his assassination attempt on Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs. When Joseph Smith was killed on June 27, 1844, his assassins created the circumstances for what became known as the Oath of Vengeance. A corollary to the doctrine of blood atonement, the Oath of Vengeance, was created on the first anniversary of Smith's death as a formal prayer for God's vengeance upon those who had shed the blood of the prophet. Six months later, the Oath of Vengeance became part of a Mormon temple endowment ceremony, the Mormon temple endowment ceremony. Uh, the specific oath stated the following. Let me get the proper <laughs> mood music for it. You and each of you do solemnly promise and vow that you will pray and never cease to pray and never cease to importune high heaven to avenge the blood of the prophets on this nation and that you will teach this to your children and your children's children until the third and fourth generation. And again, that oath sounds way cooler being read to some organ music than it does to Calliope music, as I will il illustrate. You and each of you <laughs> do solemnly promise and vow that you will pray and never cease to pray and never cease to importune high heaven to avenge the blood of the prophets on this nation and that you will teach this to your children and your children's children until the third and fourth generation. That is enough, Ezekiel! That infernal calliope is the bane of my existence! I, I said enough! Thank you, Ezekiel. That is quite irritating. God damn you, Ezekiel! Damn you and Satan's bagpipes to Lucifer's burning pit of fire! I can't take it! Uh, I'm having too much fun with that. When the doctrines of blood atonement and the oath of vengeance were dropped from the official church doctrine, fundamentalists saw this as yet another instance of the mainstream church caving into political pressure and putting man's laws before God's laws. As an example of a fairly recent act of blood atonement, let's return to that story of John Singer. On January 16th, 1988, two days before the ninth anniversary of the death of John Singer, Adam Swap, Singer's son-in-law, broke into the Comus LDS Stake Center. Uh, Singer was actually the rare double son-in-law. He was married to two of Singer's daughters. Not weird at all to be fucking two sisters in the same family, at the same time, same house. <laughs> Seriously creepy threesome. Uh, Adam and one of John's widows, Vicki Singer, filed a, uh, filled excuse me, the cultural hall with 50 pounds of dynamite. 
with a booster of ammonium nitrate, which doubled the explosive force. The bomb was detonated at 3 a.m., causing $1.5 million in damage. This act of terrorism was Adam's way of notifying the LDS church in Utah that he had begun the atonement with the vengeance. Swap and his family then proceeded to hold off an army of roughly 150 ATF and FBI agents and Utah police officers in a 13-day standoff before authorities finally stormed their cabin, took them into custody following a violent gun battle in which one officer, Utah Department of Corrections Lieutenant Fred House, sent there to assist uh, the raid using police dogs, was shot and killed. Singer was released from prison after serving 25 years of a potential 75-year sentence as a result of a letter sent to the judge by Ann House, the uh, the widow of Fred House, um, stating that, you know, Singer had spent enough time behind bars and shown remorse as well as shown personal growth and stability. During his final hearing, Swap would apologize profusely to the House family. His son, John Timothy Singer, who actually pulled the trigger killing Lieutenant House, had been released from prison the year before, and then Vicky had been released back in 1994 for her role in the bombing. So crazy shit. Several lives ruined. You know, one, one person killed over some blood atonement, just nonsense. One more concept to go over before jumping into the timeline of the Emanuel David cult, the early Mormon belief in the imminent downfall of the U.S. government, which we, I know we've already touched on here. Uh, part of Mormonism's original belief system, as I did mention before, was a conviction that the government of the U.S. would soon collapse. When Mormons failed to receive federal aid for their cause against the Missouri mobs in the late 1830s, church leaders prophesied the end of the U.S. government was very near, like any second now. And then a few years later, when the government had not collapsed yet, they were like, Chow, JK, the government isn't collapsing. It's not collapsing now. Do we make it seem like it was going to collapse now? <laughs> you silly gooses, gosh dang. We meant pretty soon, TBD. <laughs> Get back to you with specifics. Yeah, sheesh. Uh, then when the nation began to slide closer and closer to inevitable civil war in the late 1850s, church leaders again were like, now is the time. It's almost at hand, for sure. Coming down. It's all unraveling. In the next few years, done deal. And the U.S. government, of course, did survive the civil war. Uh, the federal government actually emerged from the war stronger. And church leaders were like, oh, okay. Oh, I'll, be I'll be darned. <laughs> oh, my heck. Wait, wait. Did you think I meant the government was going to be over like now? Like like today now? Gosh dang. Are you silly? No. Back to flip up for a second. Pretty soon it will be over. We we, we meant that kind of now. Uh, uh, TBD now. <laughs> OMG. G is in gosh, <laughs> to be flipping clear. Uh, as time went on, the mainstream Mormon church let go of this doomsday-centric origin belief. Uh, but various fundamentalists still convinced that the, the government, you know, that is so badly persecuted God's chosen people that it must not survive. Many of them still preach and hold on to this early message. Uh, they see the mainstream church's abandonment again of this policy. It's just more proof that they are not real Mormons, that the fundamentalists are the real ones, the ones who have stayed true to the original word of God. Okay, before recapping what we've learned so far, one quick funny example of a Utah cult having calling out the demise of America uh, backfire on them. I love this. August of 1994, former Mormon church member Jim Harmston organized his own church named the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days. Ugh, does that sound like a fun church? Of the last, whenever they add like of the last days, like, ah, oh, it's probably sad, sad sermons. A group founded on, again, uh, you know, uh, polygamyism, a little bit of polygamy, and also on, you know, the, the, the coming return of Christ uh, and, of, and America crumbling soon. Jim, before dying of a heart attack in 2013, preached that Armageddon was at hand and the federal government was corrupt and about to collapse. Uh, he also preached, <laughs> that's why I thought it was funny. 
He preached that Christ would for sure uh, return. He's going to come back for sure. April 6th, 2000. Oh, buddy, you fucked up. Should have studied cults a bit more before you launched one. Never give an exact date ever for Armageddon. That shit has never worked. Never put an exact date on Christ's return. Uh, Jimmy and his followers uh, retreated into the mountains of Utah to prepare. And unsurprisingly, many of them were pretty disappointed when April 6th rolled around. And, you know, no Jesus. And two followers <laughs> were so disappointed with Jim's bullshit, they literally sued him for $300,000 speci- <laughs> specifically for not seeing Jesus. And they won $60,000 in a settlement because they didn't get to see Jesus. And I love that so much. So weird. I just pictured Jimmy's lawyer saying shit to the plaintiffs like, listen, listen, uh, Jim feels terrible for Jesus not showing up. He understands how excited uh, you both were to say hello to the Savior. Is, is there any way you can find it in your hearts to forgive him? No, you still, okay, you still want all that money? Okay, let's look here. Jim doesn't have 300 grand. Uh, could he cut you a check for say 60 grand? And then I don't know, maybe you can sue Jesus, you know, for the rest. I mean, if you really think about it, really, it's not Jim's fault for, for Jesus flaking out, you know? So Jim, Jim shouldn't be stuck with all of uh, Jesus's bill. Okay, enough context has been set to much better understand where Emmanuel David was coming from when he started his own cult, the, the history, the tradition of uh, splinter groups within the Mormon church, some of their early beliefs that, uh, you know, he, he kind of pulled from with his cult leader craziness. Uh, to recap, many Mormon fundamentalists believe strongly in the gifts of prophecy and revelation, claim that they are frequently visited by heavenly personages. Uh, they're instructed in how that they should conduct their lives. They believe that they are following the laws of God, which are superior to the laws of society. And when these laws don't line up with government laws, such as in the case of polygamy, they have no problem breaking the laws of man. When they're attacked, they feel spiritually justified in attacking back. And in, the, in their totality, the, these beliefs separate the fundamentalists from society at large. They can't share their lives with their mainstream neighbors. They might go to jail if they did. They will definitely be judged socially, probably harshly if they do. So they isolate, they hide. Once isolated, it becomes easier and easier to lock in further and further to their beliefs. No one else is around now to challenge those beliefs. So they transition from a fringe religious group to a true cult, uh, excuse me, fringe religious group to a true cult, you know, such as the cult of Emmanuel David. Now, with all this context laid out, let's delve into the story of the Emmanuel David cult in this week's Time Suck timeline. Before we do, know that we did our best to put together this information as accurately as possible, piecing it together from news reports and a few articles here and there that have emerged over the years. Thank God for archived articles on the web. Without them, we could not have done this topic at all. Unfortunately, there is no Emmanuel David documentary, at least not one we could find. And we looked pretty hard. Uh, also, even though we looked pretty hard, no biography or any book written about him and his cult that we are aware of. But still, we did find enough to tell an interesting story. So let's tell it. After a quick word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, 
resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. 
Rules and restrictions may apply. And now we're back from a brief break, ready to dive into the life of Emmanuel David and the cult he started. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On November 9th, 1938, Emmanuel David was born in Yonkers, New York, just 15 miles up the Hudson River from Manhattan. And he was not born as Emmanuel David. He was born as Charles Bruce Longo, way less profity name. Like if you were on a game show and you had to pick which one of two men was a prophet of God to win the grand prize. One dude is Emmanuel David. Another is Charles Bruce Longo. I'm guessing you're picking Emmanuel. Unless you think the game show is trying to trick you by giving one dude such an obviously way more profity name. Uh, Charles would grow up being called Bruce and Bruce was the elder of two brothers. His younger brother, Dean, would grow up to be a police officer and live and work in Florida. Uh, became the police chief in Auburndale, Florida, and was working as, in that position as recently as 2000. Uh, Bruce and Dean were the sons of a well-established family physician, Frank Longo. Dr. Longo was 34 years old by the time Bruce was born, a well-established doctor, providing the life that comes along with that for his family. So in the blue collar at the, at the time, city of Yonkers, the Longos were fucking crushing it, doing pretty darn well for themselves. Prior to World War II, Yonkers was uh, mainly a city of manufacturing home to the Waring Hat Company, the nation's largest hat manufacturer back in a, in, in a day when a lot of people wore hats that weren't just baseball hats, back when there was a lot of hat scratch to be made. The Alexander Smith Carpet Company also had a large manufacturing facility in Yonkers. The Otis Elevator Factory employed a lot of people in Yonkers. A little bit of manufacturing has actually returned to Yonkers recently, but nothing like it was back when uh, the, the Longos were living there. A well-respected doctor would have been a member of the town's, you know, uh, high society. Bruce's mom, Luzanne Elizabeth Longo, 26, when baby boy number one showed up, was an Episcopalian homemaker. Uh, Dad Frank, Dr. Longo, was a lapsed Catholic. Neither were extremely religious, but the whole family did go to the local Episcopal church on Sundays, uh, back when way more people, you know, casually went to church. Uh, on the surface, sounds like Bruce was set up for uh, a pretty, pretty darn tootin' good childhood. Uh, there are not a lot of stories, and by a, a lot, I, I mean any, there are no stories of abuse or mistreatment or times of struggle that come from his childhood. Uh, just a year later, his partner in crime and future wife would be born on November 4th, 1939. Margit Brigitta uh, uh, Erickson was born in Sweden. She would later change her name to Rachel David, a little bit more biblical than Margit. And we, uh, we don't know anything about her childhood. Back to Bruce. Bruce was an altar boy. Uh, he was also a kid with a gift for convincing people of extraordinary things. Early indication of a future cult leader, perhaps. He'd often show up late for school with wild excuses, saying his you know, dad had suffered a, another broken leg or some terrible crisis had befallen him while he was on his way to school. You know, this dog chased him for two miles. And his teachers would believe these stories. He was very convincing. And when he was five years old, uh, he did this. Uh, he threatened to run away, claiming that his mom didn't pay enough attention to him. Not only did Bruce make good on this threat, but allegedly he talked a police officer into lending him some money to take a bus and then a taxi to his grandpa's house. He was a smooth talker, even as a, as a young kid. And unfortunately, that's about all we know about Emmanuel David's, I mean, Bruce Longo's childhood. A big thank you to all the investigative journalists and nonfiction authors out there who do write biographies, who do write historical accounts of various events, groups, eras, and people. I never realized how much I lean on your work until I don't have it in an episode like today's. Hail Nimrod to the world's historians. Uh, in 1956, Bruce graduates from high school. He graduates from Gorton High School, Yonkers' oldest still active high school. Been there since 1923. Uh, random trivia, if you're a fan of the uh, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John 
a little star maker musical movie, Grease. The musical it was based on was co-written by one Warren Casey, and Casey grew up in Yonkers and based his stories Riddell High School on Gorton High School. Uh, for a big high school that's been around for damn near a century, Gorton doesn't seem to have any super famous alumni, unless you consider Ed Fitzgerald, former editor of Sport Magazine, uh, to be famous. Uh, Bruce Longo is probably their most famous alumni, and Bruce joined the Marine Corps at 17. He went to South Korea after he graduated high school, missing the Korean War by a few years. Then after spending time in Korea, he was sent to Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where he trained as a paratrooper. It was here at Fort Bragg where he met some Mormon soldiers who told him about their faith, and he became very, very interested. Soon he was going to church with them, began reading the Book of Mormon and other LDS texts. In 1958, at the age of 19, Bruce officially converted to the Mormon faith. He became an LDS youth leader and an assistant Boy Scout leader. A year later, when he was discharged from the Marines, he finally told his parents he had converted to Mormonism. It was the right answer to everything. His mother, Lusanne, I uh, would later say when interviewed in 1978, he became fanatical. This thing changed him so much. All his friends, the people who had known him since he was born, didn't know him. Uh, some of the changes were good. He'd given up smoking and drinking. Bruce told them in keeping with the uh, he healthy living tenants of his new church. Some of the changes his conversion brought about were bad. Uh, he uh, you know, had a book of Mormon quotes he would carry around, prepared with a quote for every occasion. He was constantly preaching. Uh, and he also found full-time work for the LDS Church in New York. He became an obnoxious zealot, told his entire family that unless they also converted to Mormonism, they were definitely doomed to spend eternity in hell. One day he looked his godmother in the eye, told her that because she was not Mormon, she, uh, she was no longer his, his uh, godmother. Uh, regarding this behavior, Mrs. Longo would say hurting was very easy for him to do. Oh, gosh, dang. Uh, literally one of my biggest fears with my kids, that they will become a devout believer of really any religion and then become relentless in their belief that I have to join them. And then, and then if I won't join them, they will turn away from me. What a, what a nightmare for the non-believer. I'm very aware that religion can be a beautiful life of saving, life-affirming belief system, a support system for many. It can also rip a family into pieces. And it's done that many times, which I guess any belief system can, really, when taken to a fanatical level. Uh, in 1960, Bruce heads to Uruguay as part of his Mormon mission to convert indigenous people to the LDS church. Fellow missionary Skip Danes would later remember Bruce as being a very, very excited missionary. Uh, if you live in Utah, you may recognize Skip's name. Uh, Skip Danes runs Danes Music in Midvale, the oldest retail business in Utah and the oldest continuously operated family business in Utah since 1862. Uh, and Skip remembered Bruce as being pretty smart and having a fantastic memory. Uh, he was quickly able to master Spanish. And by the end of his mission, he could quote most, if not damn near all of the Book of Mormon from memory. He was a charismatic and effective uh, proselytizer. Of course he was. You don't become a cult leader if you're shitty when it comes to spreading the word. And how many times does the ability to quote scripture from memory come up with cult leaders over and over again? Uh, my son Kyler has an incredible memory. Maybe he can become a really effective cult leader someday. I lead a podcast cult. Maybe someday he fires up a compound and leads a real cult. I don't know, might, might create a very different kind of family business than Skip Danes is uh, running. Uh, Bruce was so excited about his mission, spent so much time memorizing the Book of Mormon, he would uh, apparently keep forgetting to eat, got sick because of that. He paid so little attention to his health. He got hepatitis and jaundice, was sent home after a hospital stay in Montevideo. According to Danes, Bruce was such a good missionary, he baptized his doctor and two of his nurses into the LDS church before heading home to America. Guy was serious. So focused on spreading his religion, he gave himself jaundice. My dude was a, a true, true zealot. Also, this episode got me thinking about missionary work. I, don't, I just don't understand why it's necessary. I mean, just listen, hear me out. 
Why can't God, if God truly does exist, just give weekly magical sermons to the whole world at once instead of forcing his people down on earth to pick from between such a wide variety of theological options? I mean, if A, God is real and B, God wants us to receive God's word and follow certain rules and worship in a very specific way, why not just tell us directly, right? Just cut out the middleman and then no more cults. They would literally all be gone if that happened. And since I'm already armchair quarterbacking for God, let me share, <laughs> let me share a few other uh, religious reform ideas before you go forward. I think God should point out who's full of shit when they say that they are godly or when they say that they're a man and woman of, of faith. Like how great would it be if when some politicians trying to bullshit everybody by holding up a Bible or some other religious book when they don't believe a word of it, and then they start talking about, you know, what a great Christian or, or whatever they are, <laughs> everyone just suddenly hears God's voice just booming from the clouds. Bullshit. Nope. Not true. Never gone to church. Pandering for votes. Liar. God could be the ultimate heckler. No more dictators rising to power via a bunch of propaganda. God could just call them out. Some wannabe despot just starts throwing around a bunch of lies. You know, we can just all hear God's voice. Just give it a rest already. Shut up. Sit down before I smite your ass. Sounds pretty cool. Uh, when it comes to God's word, it would be nice to hear it directly from God. All right, and, and, and last thing. <laughs> Why does God have to send his word to just a few humans, right? Like these living prophets. And then those humans risk looking like lunatics to spread God's word to others when as an all-powerful deity, God could just easily do that. Like to me, it, it's like having a superhero who instead of using their awesome and superpowers to save people, uh, they just boss around regular and not nearly as capable mortals into doing their superhero work. Like imagine Superman, if instead of flying around, using his incredible speed and strength and virtual indestructibleness, his telepathy, his x-ray vision to continually save the world, what if he just grew out his beard and hung out all day in the fortress of solitude in like a bathrobe and you just couldn't get him out of it? And then when some world-threatening disaster needed to be dealt with, you know, you had to pray to him and then he only got back to you sometimes and instead of helping, when he did get back to you, he just kind of told you to help yourself. Dear heavenly Superman who art in the fortress of solitude, please hear my prayer. Lex Luthor is destroying Metropolis. Many will die if you don't help us soon. Please hear me. Okay, all right. All right, Rachel. Superman here, listen up. You're in a tough spot. You're going to need to take, uh, you know, uh, whoever he has wearing one of his war suits. You're going to need to drag him into space. And then, you know, you're just going to throw him into the sun to, to beat him. I can't do that, Superman. Only you can. Listen, I'm kind of busy, Rachel. I uh, really want to try uh, this new beard oil. I just got, uh, there's a harp concert starting in about 10 minutes and uh, best of luck, Rach. Best of luck. Mysterious ways. Just some thoughts. Uh, back to Bruce in the fall of 1961, 22-year-old Bruce enrolled at Brigham Young University in Provo, 45 minutes south of Salt Lake City, where he majored in Spanish, spent time studying political science as well. It was here at BYU where he would meet fellow student, 21-year-old Margit Erickson, and he would declare after a revelation, uh, Margit Erickson, uh, Erickson's roommate would later say that she was to be his wife. I feel like that would have scared off most women, but there is, as we learned, a history of dudes doing shit like that in the Mormon faith. If I would have told Lindsay shortly after meeting her that God told me that we were to be wed, guessing she would have stopped calling me back. Uh, Margaret was also really into Mormonism at that time. She'd only recently converted. She'd become a Mormon three years earlier at the age of 18, baptized in Sweden by Gordon Riddle. She was a soft-spoken young woman with dark hair who loved to laugh, also very quick to accept the teachings of the church. Uh, Riddle would later say, not what you would call one who would challenge everything. Perfect lady for a cult leader. Real into the same religion, not one to question shit. Uh, Margit had a, Margit, I believe. Margit, Margit, had immigrated to America to serve in the church. And when Bruce, a good-looking and articulate Mormon, proposed, she dropped out of school mid-semester to marry him. 
And not surprised that she dropped out. At that time, there was a running joke about BYU that most Mormon girls studying there were actually majoring in marriage. Like not like literally, but they weren't there to get a degree. They were there to get a husband. Uh, Bruce and Margaret would quickly have two children, both daughters who are described by their paternal grandmother as rambunctious, noisy, and charming. So typical happy little girls. Uh, 1965, Bruce graduated from BYU. He and his wife now had three children. They had a family uh, uh, that had a interesting look about them. They presented quite the visual out in public. Uh, Bruce was six foot four. He weighed roughly 300 pounds. He'd be much heavier later, but 300 pounds at that time. Wore his dark hair in a long ponytail, as did his children. Uh, they all kind of like dressed the same. I just picture one of those awkward family photos is Bruce and the kids all wearing matching outfits. I picture them as like a variety of different sizes of Steven Seagal for some reason all staring up into the left. At this time, through some Mormon study groups, Bruce met and became close friends with Sterling Peacock, Gil Hibben, Paul Chipman. Hibben and Chipman had met while studying karate with Sterling Peacock near Salt Lake City earlier. And a few weeks after meeting these guys, these other young diehards, Bruce tells his friends about a vision he's had, a revelation. Turns out, God had told him he would become a prominent member of the LDS church. Fuck yeah, Bruce. Way to start small, okay? Way to test the waters. Much riskier to tell him out the gate that you're going to lead the LDS church, right? You've only known him for a few weeks. Baby step it. See how they respond to a, a more modest, somewhat vague revelation. Ramp it up later. Uh, why does God always give people good, ambitious news and revelations, by the way? Right? They're always told they're going to have a, a very important role. They're going to be a leader, often the main leader. I think it'd be fun to hear more revelations like, listen up, Bruce, this is God. I need you in the coming days as I pave the way for my return to really focus on not fucking it up. Just don't ruin it. The best way you can help me, Bruce, is to stand aside and let smarter, more important children do the heavy lifting. Stay in your lane, Bruce. I will pick a leader soon and your job will be, I don't know, to take some notes for them or maybe copies of the notes someone else I trust more takes. It. You could probably run some trivial errands, little consequence. Uh, soon after getting his first revelation, as is often the case, Bruce started having more and more visions and they got more grandiose and he wasn't shy about sharing them. He declared now that he was going to be a key figure in the church and reportedly blessed his first son, Joshua, saying the boy was going to be a prophet. Nice. Ramp it up a little bit. Deflect some of the word to your son, right? It makes it seem like you're less narcissistic. Well, a lot of Bruce's fellow Mormons uh, didn't appreciate all this. His new visions were pissing a lot of people off. They didn't care for one member in their community suddenly claiming to be a lot more important than everyone else. And then when Bruce really rocked his church uh, with some news that uh, God wanted him to, uh, you know, be his prophet, that he was, uh, you know, hearing God's word directly and, uh, you know, going to be uh, a leader of the church. Well, then people uh, really, really got uh, frustrated, really got disgusted. Then he told him that, hey, since I'm like, you know, God's prophet, uh, you should donate 10% of your income to me and not to the church. And here's where the splitting off really begins. Here's where the fundamentalism really begins, Right. Coltrane, train, leaving the station in five minutes. Next stop, starting the compound. On June of 1969, Bruce was, of course, excommunicated. Um, he didn't leave the church alone. Some of his friends, Sterling Peacock, Gil Hibben, Paul Chipman, they stood by him. They believed that he really was a prophet and charmed by his persuasive powers, you know, were also excommunicated. And now this little band of ex-Mormons, these new fundamentalists began living a communal lifestyle. All right, so living in a cult compound in Manti, Small city of less than 4,000 people in central Utah, two hours south by car of Salt Lake City. Here we go! Cult, cult, cult. Uh, Manti is an interesting little town. Very important town in Mormon history. Even though it's never been anything other than a tiny town, it's uh, just as old as Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo. 
Provo, excuse me, was dedicated as a city way back on February 6, 1851, the fourth city in Utah. Salt Lake settled just four years prior in 1847. Uh, the fifth Mormon temple was built in Manti. In 1970, while living in Manti, Bruce legally changes his name to Emmanuel David, feeling that it better reflected his prophethood. And then Margaret changed her name to Rachel David. And the group of followers that moved with Emmanuel David to Utah, which consisted of David's children and about 20 friends, became known as the David family. They lived communally in Manti, worshipped Emmanuel David as God's one true living prophet. Now truly a cult, David's visions continue. He quickly transitions from a dude who's told by God that he will have an important role in the church to, you know, being told that his son was going to be a prophet to being told that he is the one true prophet of God. All of that happens, you know, in just a, a year's time. Weird the guy that, you know, just didn't tell him he's going to be the one true prophet out of the gate. But again, like I said earlier, you know, you got to start small. You got to ramp it up. Uh, life on David's commune could be terrifying as to be expected with living with a lunatic who claims to, uh, you know, be the prophet of God. A woman who didn't want to be identified, who spent time in David's cult as a child, later recalled, it is not possible to describe in words what growing up in that atmosphere was like. As a child living in the commune, she was periodically beaten and uh, weirdly beaten. Once when she and the other children she was playing with were uh, laughing, I guess, more than Emmanuel David cared for, he held her down, uh, took his socks off, and then stuck his bare foot in her mouth. I've not heard of that one before. And not being someone with a real uh, strong love of feet, that's so fucking gross to me. If you held me down and put your bare foot in my mouth, I would immediately begin plotting your death. I would, I would want some blood atonement. Uh, this woman also recalled other instances when adult cult members would simultaneously pull in opposite directions on the arms of a child until the child would scream in agony. What the fuck? Getting creative with the sadism. A lot of weird and violent shit happens in the Bible and other Mormon scriptural books, but I'm pretty sure this specific punishment is not written about anywhere. Uh, like we explored earlier, there were also economic incentives for Emmanuel David to start his own church. Follower Gil Hibben, knife maker, taught his skills to some of the other two dozen members of the group, according to reports in the Salt Lake City newspapers. Uh, through this, the group made some money, and then Emmanuel uh, would spend this money on gourmet food and other luxuries. Right, their money was his money. The law of consecration, what is yours is ours, and by ours, I mean mine. Uh, while David's followers were cool with all this crazy bullshit, the fellow residents of Manti were not so into it. And before the group kind of got ran out of town the following year, David uh, was starting to scare many of them. One former neighbor later told the Salt Lake City Tribune that David, six foot four again, uh, you know, hugely well over 300 pounds at this point, big bearded, long haired. He started walking around the neighborhood on a regular basis, carrying a three and a half foot long sword made for him by his followers. And he would openly claim that a time will come when it will be used to lop off thousands of heads. What the fuck? My neighbor says that shit to me. I'm going to show him one of my nine millimeters. I'm going to let him know that it may, you know, one day be used to put several bullets into the head of one of my crazy fucking sword wielding neighbors. Get out of here. That's terrifying. That's when you can't let the kids play out in the yard without watching them like a hawk. When your giant neighbor who thinks he's, you know, God's prophet's walking around with the battle sword, talking about lopping heads off. Uh, now, when, uh, when he gets his sword and walking around, uh, now he starts uh, thinking he's straight up God. Early into his time in Manti, he stopped saying he was a prophet and started claiming that he was just straight up God. He was God, he was Jesus Christ, and he was the Holy Spirit, all wrapped up into one. It's fucking straight to the top, ma, straight to the top. Uh, while he lived in Manti, David and his followers started to occasionally show up at the Temple Square in Salt Lake City, uh, chanting, singing songs about how David's God, how the church needs to let God, uh, you know, lead them. And the police and LDS security officers would show up and be like, hey, uh, hey, God, hey, uh, buddy, you're fucking scaring people with your, with your, with your big ass and your sword, okay? So, uh, <laughs> I don't want to throw God's uh, God's bottom in jail, but I will. 
Uh, despite freaking a lot of people out, there was never any violence. No one was ever arrested. Uh, at some point in 1970, David found time to visit his home in New York. What if he flew first class? He must have, right? I mean, he's, he's God. I would think if God, you know, doesn't just teleport or have his own private jet, he could at least fly first class. Uh, back in Yonkers, David tells his mom, his dad died uh, the year before 1969. Uh, he tells his mom, uh, and apparently in the same congenial sort of voice you might use to describe the weather, that he is God. And then after what I imagine was a very long, awkward pause, his mom says that she is sorry if that's how he feels <laughs> because she doesn't seem that way or believe that to be true. Very mom thing to say. Also, uh, during this same visit, David tells his mom that uh, she's welcome to come live with him, provided she does acknowledge his holiness and obey his rules. And then she declined and changed the subject. What an awkward conversation that would be. I picture him throwing a tantrum, right? When he doesn't get his way. Mom! You've never listened to me. You've never treated me like I deserve. <laughs> I have a lot of people in, back in Utah who worship me, Mom! They, they know that I'm God and they want to meet God's mom and you're ruining it. You make me so mad, mom. This conversation's not over. I'm grabbing my God sword. I'm going for a walk to cool down, collect my thoughts. And while I'm gone, you should pray about your sinful ways and we can talk about it when I get back. I'll hear your prayers because I am God. <laughs> uh, David left following this rejection and he'd never spend more than five minutes with his mom ever again. Uh, he would sometimes call home, usually from a hotel, to let you know her know that the family was fine. Of course they were. God is raising them. Uh, 1971, Emmanuel David and his followers traveled to Nebraska, Washington, and Montana looking for new recruits, not finding much success. Uh, by 1973, the Davids uh, have seven children. Rachel, born in 1963. Elizabeth, born in 1965. Joshua, born in 68. Deborah, born in 69. Joseph, born in 70. David, uh, born in 72. Yes, he actually named one of his kids David David. Uh, hey, David, David. <laughs> That's such a stupid name. Sorry if your name is David, David, but you fucking get it. You've already been harassed. And then uh, Re Rebecca, I think it's for like, it's a weird spelling of Rebecca, R-E-B-Y-C-A, the youngest born in 73. Uh, by 73, David was moving with his family and his cult all over the country. Again, from hotel to hotel, established himself as a good customer. This is a new scam he's uh, starting to run now. Established himself as a new customer or a good customer by paying cash in large amounts up front. Then uh, running up a huge tab and then bouncing out of town without paying it. In, in, his, in an earnest, commanding, often courteous voice, Emmanuel David was now telling anyone who, who will listen that he is the son of David and a prophet of God and the Holy Ghost and Jesus and everything else. He's a lot of stuff. It's getting a little hard to follow now. He's, he's the son of a prophet who lived over 2,000 years ago. He is a prophet. Uh, he is God in various forms. It's almost like he's crazy. It's almost like he's really crazy. Uh, he's also telling people that the Mormon church is evil, inspired by the devil, which of course is why he was excommunicated. And he's prophesying that a great cloud will descend on the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City and from it a bolt of lightning. I should probably put some music behind this, his proclamations. A great cloud will descend on the temple in Salt Lake City and from it a bolt of lightning will shoot out and split the temple in half. And the entire complex will be consumed by holy fire and not done, Mount Timpanogos. At 11,752 feet, one of the tallest mountains in Utah, second highest peak in the Wasatch Range, uh, will be transferred to the town of Manti, and it will smite the town. And my followers will admire my glory. Again, much better to, you know, have that kind of talk than if he's dealing with this, which seems more appropriate for him. 
I will. I'm sick of the mistreatment. Listen, me, you guys. My mom isn't respecting me. And there's, I'm going to do some stuff with the mountain. Come on. Please. That's, uh, don't, just get on board so I'm not smited, you know? And I don't. <laughs> just, it's very frustrating that not everyone's listening to me. Uh, that mountain thing feels like he took the scripture about God, you know, being able to move mountains or faith being able to move mountains uh, way too seriously. Uh, I just picture this guy saying all this shit to like the, uh, the hotel clerk, right? Saying these hotels, you know, just them having to listen. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Mr. David soup, super groovy. Yeah. You're going to show them. You're going to show them. I hate to cut you off. But there's a couple folks standing behind you. They'd like to check into the rooms. Uh, here's your fresh towels and please, uh, you need to square up on your bill by tomorrow. We're gonna have to call the police. Uh, not only would geological miracles occur, but David also claimed he'd be wealthy. So wealthy. He once told Skip Danes that he could just march right on down to the shopping center in downtown Salt Lake City and buy, and I love this detail, a million dollars worth of socks. As we told Skip, I'll get a million dollars worth of socks. So much sock money. What an incredibly odd and specific statement. Very peculiar go-to for what you do if you suddenly had a million dollars. I, I, I've never, I've, I've fantasized about that. I've talked to people about, oh, if you had a lot of money, what would you do? Socks have never come up, but they came up for manual. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, man. That's what I would, yeah, no, I, that sounds awesome. Big mansion, huge heated pool. That would be super cool. That would be super cool if you had the money. What What would I do? Oh, man, what would I do if I had millions of dollars? Gosh, I have, I have thought about this so much. And I'm gonna tell you this. The very first thing I would buy is a million dollars worth of socks. So many socks, the most. Tube socks, ankle socks, sports socks, crew socks, quarter socks, no-shows, dress socks, rib socks, wool socks, cotton socks, argyle socks, seamless toe cotton, rob, robe, dress socks, silk socks, polka dot socks, striped, floral, performance socks. I'd wear a new pair of socks every 10 minutes because that's what multimillionaires do, as everyone knows. They constantly put on new pairs of fucking socks. God damn it. I fucking love socks. Uh, David also showed his old buddy, Skip, uh, who was not in his cult, photographs of an $8,800,000 Spanish colonial estate in Phoenix. He said he was going to buy it any, t- any day now. Uh, also showed Danes what appeared to be a signed purchase order for something like $320,000 worth of rare imported China. Did he actually buy that China? I don't think so. I don't think he ever had that much money. He just liked to pretend like people to think he was doing great things. He was wealthy. Uh, he would even visit a Rolls Royce car dealer uh, on a regular basis to study the car, sit in it, pretend to own it. Oh my God, I can only imagine how much the dealer salespeople fucking hated him. Heads up, guys. Looks like God's here again. Five, God at five o'clock. <sighs> Did he pay for that hole in the leather he put in the passenger seat uh, with the sword last time he came through? Okay. Uh, once a year or so, he would drive out to a huge Salt Lake City home he liked, one on almost two acres of land. He'd knock on the door, tell the owner that he admired the home and would like to buy would like to buy it from him. It's a random, crazy looking dude. This is big six foot four, 350 pound dude. You know, big ass bushy God beard, long, you know, braided ponytail at this point. He's walking up to your front door. I'd like to buy, admire your house very much and would like to buy it from you. But he didn't have any money to buy it. And the home wasn't for sale. How did this complete maniac convince anyone to follow him? It's kind of infuriating. Uh, apparently, most of the people he interacted with in these insane ways didn't actually mind talking to him, whether he was trying to convert people or convince them how fabulously wealthy he was. Even if someone didn't buy any of the bullshit he was selling, they still found him charming. He would gaze directly at them with his blue-gray eyes, so passionate about his cause. Even people who are positive, he was for sure full of shit, found him interesting to talk to. His uh, brother Dean would later say he could have sold refrigerators to the Eskimos. He would have made a terrific salesman. 
1973, David started uh, contacting various politicians and state officials. (laughs) He wrote letters to LDS church headquarters and the Israeli parliament, uh, Knesset. David told the Israeli prime minister in Knesset in 1973 that he was God writing, I am the father of Jesus Christ that you slew. I am the only one that can deliver you. Without me, you will perish. I am the father of Israel and the blood of Israel runs through my veins. When I first read that, I thought, man, that letter must have freaked them out. But then I thought that probably wasn't even the craziest letter they got that day. Can you imagine the kinds of letters places like this get every day from just religious zealots? Like Knesset, the LDS headquarters, you know, like the Vatican, the Vatican especially must get so many good, crazy letters. Dear Pope, or should I say Antichrist, buckle up, buttercup. It's going to be a long ride. Uh, In another letter, Emmanuel David proclaimed himself the new president of the LDS church. (laughs) I'm president now. He wrote a letter to LDS president uh, at the time, Spencer Kimball, told him he's an evil shepherd. You people are perishing in your ignorance and unbelief. Guessing Kimball didn't take that letter too seriously. Uh, follower uh, Sterling Peacock, who changed his name to uh, Matthias David, and Paul Chipman, who became Jonathan David, both biblical names. Uh, they traveled to Spokane, Washington around 1974, opened a karate studio just about 30 minutes from where I'm recording here in the Suck Dungeon. Uh, Matthias, by the way, when interviewed in Spokane in 2000, told the reporter he was now Moses reincarnated. reincarnated. Awesome. Uh, no word on who Paul became. Maybe he thought he was Spider-Man or something. It'd be a fun and unexpected twist. Uh, the two men sent their, actually, uh, uh, Paul would leave the church by this point. We'll get into that later. Uh, the two men sent their prophets, their karate studio prophets, to support Emmanuel David, his wife, and their seven children. From August 1974 to June of 1975, David and his family resided at the uh, Bethesda Holiday Inn in Maryland, moving eventually into a five-room suite that cost about 120 bucks a day, ordering room service meals, paying at first with what he said were money orders from Sweden, uh, money orders likely came from a relative of his wife who still had family in Sweden. Uh, long distance phone calls would come in from Sweden almost every day. Pretty soon the money stopped coming. David uh, did pay between $20,000 and $30,000 for his room and lots of room service. And by the time the hotel evicted him for non-payment, he'd leave a bill of around, of around $10,000 that he did not pay. His mom later remembered him calling her from his, uh, this hotel, telling her that he had occupied a whole floor of the hotel. Uh, he didn't. And then he had big plans to buy a yacht a big mansion, and to take her on a huge shopping spree in New York City and that they would stay at the famed Waldorf Astoria. Uh, Where are you getting this money? Mrs. Longo asked him. And uh, apparently, (laughs) uh, he just said, you'll see. She was was very surprised by this because, you know, uh, he'd been asking her for money ever since he left home and she just stopped sending him money a few years earlier. Yeah, you'll see. You'll see, mom. I'll get it. I'll get my yacht, my mansion. You don't no faith in me. And when I go on that shopping spree without you now, mom, you will look on in awe at the sheer magnitude of the socks I'll be purchasing. Socks made out of Angora, bamboo, polyester, cotton tri-blend socks, nylon socks, rayon, latex, merino wool socks, smart wool socks, mohair, modal socks, lurex socks, flax socks, elastic socks, spandex socks, leather socks, snakeskin socks, combined cotton, mercurized cotton socks, recycled cotton, organic cotton, cotton top socks, muffin top socks, moleskin, cardboard, aluminum alloy socks, stainless steel fucking socks, cock socks, rock'em sock'em robot socks, every sock! And the world will be owned by me, mother. And you will rue the day when you refuse to acknowledge your one true God. You, mommy, will get no socks. <laughs> Not even thrift store holes in the toes socks for you. Oh, man. Loving the sock talk. 
Uh, actually, all the sock talk reminds me, uh, sorry about this. We do have one more sponsor to go over today. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Emmanuel David's House of God and Socks. Emmanuel David, as I like to call him, God. <laughs> he cares about two things more than anything else. Your salvation, which can only be found through following his word, and also providing you with the finest high-quality socks from around the globe. Here at Emmanuel David's House of God and Socks, we have everything you need to keep those feet warm, clean, and heavenly. We have all kinds of cotton socks, silk socks, polyester socks, wool socks, for the more adventurous, we have deerskin, llama fur, rabbit hide, even seal skin socks. For the really adventurous who like to live more fabulously, we have silver socks, solid gold socks, albino tiger hide socks, even bald eagle feather socks. And for the most adventurous, we have lemur labia socks, blood diamond socks, stem cell socks, dead puppy socks, even super soft human foreskin socks. So many socks, we guarantee we will knock your socks off and then promptly sell you a new pair of socks. <laughs> so come on down to Emmanuel David's house of God in socks, or you and your nasty fate will burn in hell. Sorry. <laughs> that, of course, is not a real sponsor. I've lost my mind today. Uh, that's just me having more fun than I should with sock talk. Okay, refocusing. Of course, David did not uh, get his big shopping spree yacht, mansion, or uh, socks. Uh, he got kicked the fuck out of the Holiday Inn, Bethesda. And he and his family headed back west, ended up in Montana in June of 1975, where they would stay for about six months, and where David pulled the same bullshit at the Red Lion Motor Inn in Missoula, where he'd live until January of 76. His followers lived and worked elsewhere while David and his family just hung out in the hotel, waited for the U.S. government to control, uh, I'm sorry, to uh, collapse, you know, waiting for the time to be right for him to finally lead, get all the fucking socks a man could want. Uh, while in Missoula, David, of course, continued to have visions. He decided that his three most important followers, Matthias, Jonathan, Peter, David, they're actually archangels. He renamed them Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. What a, what a cool phone call those guys must have gotten. Hey, Matthias, this is David. I have great news. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, yes. Now, yes, yes, things are fine at the motor end. Continental breakfast, a little skimpy. Uh, waffle maker's been out for a few days, but all in all, the coffee's hot, the grapefruit juice is cold, and the muffins aren't too hard. <laughs> That's not what I'm calling about. Uh, y yes, yes, I did get the socks you sent me. They came in the mail yesterday. I, I did not already have those patterns. No, thank you very much. But again, not why I'm calling. I wanted to tell you that your new name is <laughs> Michael, as in Archangel, buddy. Heck yeah, you deserve it. You're an Archangel now. Feels good, doesn't it? Uh, be sure and tell the karate students <laughs> to be careful sparring with one of God's warriors. Uh, David also declared to his followers that the federal government was, uh, again, about to collapse. Uh, but fear not, he promised to save the republic and become the new leader. Told followers Sterling Peacock, a.k.a. Matthias, a.k.a. Archangel Michael, and Paul Chipman, a.k.a. Jonathan David, a.k.a. Archangel Raphael, to sell their Spokane Karate Studio, leave their families, go to Washington, D.C., uh, along with Peter David, a.k.a. Archangel Gabriel. He has, he has to have his three archangels in D.C. to be prepared for the imminent collapse of the government. He gave them each a couple hundred bucks. You know, they didn't need much money. It wasn't going to be long. And, uh, you know, sent them off to live in D.C. And it didn't go well. <laughs> uh, you know, they're not working now. They only have a few hundred dollars. Uh, they quickly run out of money and soon they are homeless. So now he has three archangels sleeping on the sidewalk, sleeping on heated grates at night to stay warm, hanging out in parks and shit, looking for scraps of food during the day, just waiting for the, the end of the government. Incredibly, their faith in Emmanuel is undiminished by this. Uh, they call him collected the motor in every day until he's kicked out in January of 76. So, you know, overall things going real well for the crew right now. 
Uh, when David leaves Missoula, he leaves a $6,000 hotel bill, returns to Utah. In late 76, maybe even early 77, after about a full fucking year of these guys sleeping on sidewalks, the three archangels are called to meet in Salt Lake City for the gathering, where David will show them the original tablets given to LDS church founder Joseph Smith. Big news, guys. Big news. Sorry about you sleeping on sidewalks in D.C. for a year when you could have just spent that time with their families in Spokane. <laughs> Continuing to run that karate studio I made you sell. But fear not. The wait has been worth it. I, being God, have some cool socks. And also, the same tablets Joseph Smith once had. Yes, the magical tablets that launched the Mormon faith. It's undeniable. God will destroy their false temple soon. Rebuild it with me as king. We will move mountains yet. I cannot wait. Uh, only one of the archangels actually made it back to the rendezvous uh, for the big reveal. Years later, Paul Chipman slash Jonathan Davis slash Raphael recalled, when I got back to Salt Lake, of course, he did not have the tablets. <laughs> he said he was the tablets. Oh, man, are you fucking kidding me? I love it. How pissed was Paul? It's like somebody telling you they got like a huge, beautiful, sprawling compound for you and your family to live on with them. You know, something maybe you've been sacrificing for for years, giant houses, pool, beautiful grounds on a lake. Huge dock, giant boat. And you show up and it's just like a small patch of dirt off the side of a park. There's no structures on it. And, and then they're like, see, isn't it beautiful? W what? No, that's just a, that's a little bit of like, like a dirt. That's like a dirt lot. That you, I don't even think you own with nothing on it. Just next to a park. Well, yeah, well, it is when you look at it with your human eyes. Look with your mind's eye. Then you see the lake and the boat and the pool and the house that I talked about. Motherfucker, me and my family can't live in your mind's eye. Uh, 1977, the FBI began investigating some fraudulent David family fundraising activities. Uh, Matthias David, indicted as Sterling Peacock, and another follower, Gil Hibben, charged with wire fraud by a federal grand jury in Salt Lake City, accused of making up phony hard luck stories to raise money. Uh, Matthias uh, would uh, be convicted, end up being sent to Terminal Island Penitentiary in California, uh, just outside of Los Angeles after he called an acquaintance and claimed that he was related to a nine-year-old girl suffering paralysis in a hospital and pleading for a donation to help her with medical expenses. The acquaintance sent the money, but was suspicious, ended up contacting the FBI, and investigators found that the family of the paralyzed girl, uh, who said that they were not related to Matthias David and had never seen any of the donation money, Matthias convicted of wire fraud, and... Uh, <laughs> never seemed to show remorse for this later. Uh, years later, when, it, when he was interviewed in Spokane in 2000, he said, actually, I just borrowed the money. I had no intention of ripping anybody off. I kept track of every dollar. I really don't want all this kind of stuff brought back up. Your hashing stuff has been gone for years and years. Oh, boy. Uh, Gil Hibben also got into, uh, you know, the guy that was uh, charged may have been, it's a little murky with him. Can't find the right source to, to, to pin down if he was indicted or not. Uh, he may have been convicted, may have not. But uh, Emmanuel David now is uh, getting nervous. Federal investigators are closing in on him. They want him for both tax evasion and wire fraud. Uh, the police also concerned about uh, the David children, like John Singer, David, you know, not sending his kids to school or teaching them anything. Salt Lake City school authorities and other school districts have lost track of the kids over the years because they were living in hotels all over the country. Man, life for these kids must have been so strange. According to interviews, they were barely ever seen while living in hotels. Staff don't remember them ever using like the swimming pools or, or even leaving their rooms very often. Rarely seen in public. Hotel employees would later say they would emerge from their suite about once a week. And when they did, they would just quietly follow behind their, their dad. You know, boys wearing the same neatly braided hair their father did. All of them very orderly and polite. One hotel employee said, like ducklings. When people spoke to the kids, they would just look up at their father to see how to respond. 
wait for him to smile or nod approval. And then if they did, you know, they'd speak back. Very few words. Employees described the family as loners, complete loners. What a fucking terrible childhood. Guy, the guy robbed him of that. Uh, when they were living back in Salt Lake City, 1977, the police knew about them, knew that they were living in a hotel, knew it was strange. Police Lieutenant Roger Kinnersley would later say uh, they just didn't see what they could do about it. They couldn't prove David was doing anything illegal. And because Utah was more tolerant, especially at that time, of fringe religious beliefs, it, it would have been difficult to have Emmanuel David declared as an unfit parent. Uh, Kinnersley said in New York, they would call him a nut. Out here, because it's the home of Mormonism and organized religion, they're a little more kindly. And the children didn't seem to be in any immediate danger. They were quiet, well-fed, literate. They seemed to adore their father. Uh, in May of 77, Emmanuel and Rachel started to live on the 11th floor, uh, the Alta Suite of the International Dunes Hotel, paying $90 a day in cash, usually in $100 bills, ordering catered meals several times a week from a French restaurant. Uh, so accustomed to David's lavish taste that the manager sometimes created unusual Napoleons and cream puffs, for, especially for him. Some reports say his meals would cost uh, 100 to 120 bucks. You know, and that's 1977 money. And he would pay in cash. They would stay there for just over a year. Uh, for those familiar with Salt Lake City, this hotel became the Shiloh Inn, the big one downtown, uh, located at 206 Southwest Temple, uh, downtown at the intersection of 200 South and West Temple, now Holiday Inn Express. I've, I've seen this place many times. And this uh, hotel would soon become the scene of terrible tragedy. July 28th, 1978, David borrows Skip Dane's Jeep, says he's taking his family to see a new expensive house that they're going to move into. Then later, he brings back the Jeep, uh, saying that, uh, you know, the kids declared that they love the hotel too much to leave. Skip would later say he looked really bummed out, crestfallen. Then two days later, on July 30th, David dashes into Dane's shop again. This time, yells that he needs the pickup truck, has to borrow it immediately because finally everything's coming together. Uh, Dane's long used to David's crazy antics, replied this, yeah, the keys are in the truck. Go ahead and take it. David takes off, drives to the mountains, you know, I'm guessing, you know, probably, uh, Skip probably thought he had a meet, going to have a meeting with God or something, some type of vision. And uh, the talk, if he did have a vision, must not have gone well because the following day on July 31st, Emmanuel David is found dead in Skip's truck at the age of 39. The police found a hose running into the truck through the window on the driver's side with rags stuffed around the hose to seal the window. He had just $5 in his pocket, no suicide note. Why did he do it? No one will ever know for sure. David seemed to have made plans for the future, including the prospective purchase of two pianos via Skip Danes, who was to loan David $47,000 a piece for them to arrive from Sweden. Uh, this guy, Skip Danes, by the way, very generous guy. He donates. I got kind of sucked into some side stuff with him. Donates stuff all the time around Salt Lake City. Uh, David said that Rachel had been a good pianist in Sweden and he wanted the children to learn. He was impatient with the $47,000 pianos, asked all sorts of questions. Was there nothing better? Obviously doing this, the Danes have a... Uh, a plan on swindling Skip Danes out of the hundred grand. And then, I don't know, bounce out of the country with it. Who knows? The main theory behind David's suicide is that the law was about to catch up to him, right? They were catching up to his schemes and, and he couldn't just bear going from cult leader, living it up in a hotel, eating fancy French food to being a con artist trapped in a prison cell. On August 1st, Rachel David is informed, his wife via telephone by the local police of her husband's death of course, she, you know, becomes hysterical. Not surprised. According to the officer who spoke with her, uh, she expressed fears about how she was going to continue to pay the bills. How, how was she going to care for her family? Uh, she told the police she couldn't even pay for the burial. At some point over the next two days, and, and, and if she didn't have enough money to pay for the burial and he was only found with $5 in his pocket, that could have been a motive for his suicide as well. Whatever cash he was using over that past, you know, year plus ran out and he just couldn't handle, uh, you know, bouncing to another place and leaving another hotel again. I don't know, speculating. 
Some point over the next two days, Rachel comes up with a terrible solution to the problem of how she's going to provide for her family. She decides that she is not going to. At 7.20, at 7.21 a.m., the morning of August 3rd, Rachel helps their seven children step one by one. This is fucking terrible. Really, really bad. Has them step one by one onto two or three stacked chairs set out on the 11th floor balcony. And then she has them climb over the gold railing, encouraging them to jump or be thrown to their deaths below. Uh, The oldest children, true believers in their father's bullshit, willingly apparently jump off of the balcony or seem to. They would fall 200 feet to the roof of the hotel coffee shop below or land on the ground next to it. Holy shit. Rachel then threw the younger children off. One of the younger children, at least one, reportedly grabbed the railing, fought to hang on. And then mom Rachel pulled him loose and threw him off as well. uh, Kim Miller, a resident of Salt Lake at the time, recalled that the news reported that onlookers were shouting, no, stop, as the children either jumped or were thrown off. Then when Rachel got to the railing, after all her other children were already on the ground, now the onlookers started to yell, jump, jump. And then she jumped to her death. What a surreal and horrific and truly unforgettable event to witness. God, if you just watched uh, some woman also uh, throw seven kids off a fucking balcony, what would you yell when it was her turn? Would you yell, stop? Or would you well fucking jump, you piece of shit? At that point, ah, be real hard for me in that moment to feel any sympathy for a woman who had just murdered her entire fucking family in front of everyone. Uh, a witness of the event said people were shouting again, yeah, no, stop. There was no noise at all. She simply lifted them up, tossed them one at a time with so many children falling to their death. It wasn't long before a lot of people down on the street took notice. Um, ah, yeah, the full horror of the incident became apparent when uh, uh, one of the young girls landed in the gutter Still alive when ambulance attendants picked her up minutes later, police and first responders tried to get the kids to a hospital to save them. Two died almost immediately after arriving at different hospitals. One died at 10.03 in the morning. One died at 10.10. Without their family to identify them, the only people they'd seen, you know, uh, really over their whole lives for anything more than just a few minutes, police couldn't figure out which kid was which initially. Uh, The crime was so baffling initially that police couldn't figure out if it was a homicide or a mass suicide. If the man originally named Bruce Longo, sweet-tongued native of Yonkers, had convinced himself and his family that he was a divinity and that that was all that mattered if he had built such impenetrable walls against the outside world, so that when they died, they felt they had, uh, when he died, they felt they had no choice but to follow him, I guess it would have been a, a mass suicide. But people recalled, again, at least one child holding onto the railing, screaming and crying, and if that's true, then, you know, mass murder. Uh, Police Lieutenant Roger Kinnersley reported, we are classifying it as six homicides and one attempted homicide with Rachel and Emmanuel David classified as suicides. And yes, he did say six homicides, not seven. Incredibly, one of the kids who fell did not die. One of the children, a girl originally identified as Elizabeth, 14, but then re-identified as Rachel, 15, taken to the intensive intensive care unit of a local hospital, brought there with two broken legs, multiple injuries to her pelvis, arms, jaw, teeth, tongue, and shoulders, spleen. Uh, Kinnersley said, about as bad as you can get and not be dead. In just the first few weeks, she received the equivalent of five complete blood transfusions, 10 hours of surgery so complicated the chief surgeon refused to guess how much it would uh, cost. She would amazingly survive the incidents, left with major irreparable health problems, including brain damage, be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And she may be living right now in Sandpoint, just north of uh, us here in the Suck Dungeon. More on that in a bit. When investigators searched the hotel room, the family stayed in before jumping. They found artwork left by the kids, charcoal sketches, watercolors of perfectly ordinary looking landscapes. They also found, uh, you know, notes that children had written 
talking about how their dad, their father was a holy man. He's going to save the world. The words on one piece of paper and carefully printed pencil read, praise thee to Emmanuel, king of holiness, our father. How fucking sad. On August 9th, 1978, the funeral for the majority of the Davids was held in a small cemetery south of Salt Lake City. Eight caskets, pink ones for the girls. The parents' caskets were bare. It was a public funeral, but not that many people showed up. David's mom and his brother Dean made it, stood together with a few dozen others, some old friends, some cult members. It was a hot day. The funeral director stood silently before the caskets for a moment before looking at the people standing and reciting the Lord's Prayer. Rachel David, the surviving 15-year-old daughter, later released to a foster home after months of surgeries. Eventually, she went to live with her uncle, Jacob David, another cult member. Yep, Emmanuel sucked in one of his wife's brothers uh, with his bullshit before he died. He would eventually become her legal guardian, live with her in a rented home with his three sons and Ruth David, uh, Matthias David's former wife in Colorado. On April 10th, 1993, the Deseret News published an article with the headline, Survivor of 78 Family Suicide Jump Says Her Father Will Return to Earth. Uh, The sole survivor of the mass homicide said in an interview, I remember my father said he will be back. I know he will. My father never lied. Man, this poor woman. All her dad did was lie. I get her now wanting to, uh, you know, not, not wanting to accept that, you know, to accept it would mean that your parents and your siblings all died for nothing, died over a bunch of bullshit. That's a very tough pill to swallow. I can't imagine. Uh, then 30-year-old Rachel said she couldn't remember what happened to her on August 3rd, 1978. It's all hazy, she said. It's something I want to shove out. I want my family back. Uh, Rachel claimed she jumped willingly. The 93 article went on to say that while Rachel still couldn't walk on her own, she could move with the aid of a walker. She liked to work on paint by number art. I like to drink coffee, listen to Neil Diamond. I uh, like to be outdoors. Said she only got out uh, twice a week if somebody took me. And family members said she struggled to control her emotions and would sometimes erupt in anger. Remember, she did suffer permanent brain damage. Tragically, Rachel tried to join her family in death several times over the following years. As far as I know, none of her suicide attempts have been successful. In addition to Rachel, who'd be 56 or seven now, uh, still possibly believing in her, uh, or still possibly believing that her dad is God, you know, there may be others still waiting for his return. In the most recent articles we could find referencing Matthias and Jacob David, they still believe that Emmanuel David's God. Uh, Matthias was second in charge. His faith in Emmanuel never wavered, right? One of his archangels, 96. Uh, Matthias and Jacob published a testimonial letter restating their commitment to Emmanuel David. They say they still wear the Star of David, believe they are reincarnated biblical figures like Moses and Abraham. Other cult members, they claimed, were believed to be reincarnated uh, figures of like Adam, Eve, others. Testimonial letter given uh, to those who ask about the group's belief. Uh, They said that in 96, they weren't proselytizing anymore, uh, weren't trying to get any new members. Messiah said the group's remaining members would not repeat the suicides and murders that occurred in 78, but that he also didn't consider those uh, crimes or those deaths to be crimes, excuse me. He said, what I believe in is David and Rachel and their family. They could not be apart. When David left, they left with him. That was their choice and a shock to us. They couldn't live without him. Can you imagine what kind of faith it would take for a whole family to leap from the 11th floor of a hotel? Can you imagine what kind of faith that would take? Wow, man, some people's minds just can't be changed. Instead of being appalled by their senseless deaths, he's like, he's like impressed. He's like, I mean, that's proof. That's proof he was God, right? I mean, why else would they do that? When an interviewer responded to what he said by telling him that most people would say that what Emmanuel and Rachel did was just disgusting, was a sign of madness, a sign of obsession, uh, rather than a sign of faith, Matthias replied, well, they can think what they want, but that's not true. Former members living in Spokane, Washington, Aurora, Colorado, at least uh, as late as April 2000, uh, were in regular contact with each other, frequently met during campouts at Priest Lake in northern Idaho. 
In 2002, articles from the Spokesman Review reported that members of the family of David still living in Spokane, uh, yeah, still living in Colorado. These followers told the Spokesman Review that they believed Emmanuel David's still God, still preparing for his second coming. Uh, this was troubling to another former member of the cult, Paul Chipman, a.k.a. Jonathan David, a.k.a. Archangel Raphael, one of the dudes who spent a year being homeless in D.C. waiting for the U.S. government to collapse, a man who was uh, working in a, as, as a nurse in Spokane in 2000. Seems as if he moved from Spokane to Midvale, Utah after that, and maybe living there now. And he said in an interview, it's hard to believe that his influence is still hanging over them. The ex-member was at a loss to explain why he or the others followed Emmanuel. The best answer he could come up with was, I can tell you this much. I had spiritual experiences in that group. Spiritual, I guess, doesn't mean it's necessarily from God, but they were experiences to keep you hooked, to keep you thinking that if I had this experience, then this must be right. I look back now at that time and it was completely wasted years, just totally wasted. Chipman and Gil Hibben said they were both invited to rejoin the family of David by Matthias uh, and Jacob in 1998. Matthias and Jacob uh, told Chipman that they believed that if the group would just get back together, Emmanuel David would for sure return. Holy shit. 20 years after the suicide of their leader, 20 years after their leader's wife killed herself and killed all but one of the kids uh, that she also tried to kill, and they're still in. They still think there's something to all this. Uh, Chipman wanted nothing to do with them, neither did Hibben. Uh, when the old members wouldn't rejoin, Matthias and Jacob told the remaining followers that Chipman and Hibben were like Judas, the follower who betrayed Jesus. Also in 2000, Emmanuel David's brother, Dean, was interviewed about what he thought about his brother's cult after having a few decades to reflect on it. And he said, I don't recall seeing anything godlike about my brother, who was a mortal in every sense of the word. He was a very flawed mortal. So for him to have gained this kind of influence over people is amazing, particularly for it to still exist. There must have been a charismatic side to him that the rest of us just didn't know about. I do believe there's a God, Dean said, but I don't believe it's my former brother. Interesting choice of words. Not dead brother, not deceased brother, former brother. Seems as if he disowned him. Uh, 2005, surviving daughter, uh, the surviving daughter, Rachel, was moved to Sandpoint, Idaho, less than an hour north of where I'm recording. Matthias said in 2008, she's in a care center there, real nice care center. And again, at least as recently as 2008, Matthias still at it. Uh, that year, he sent letters to LDS church leaders and the media proclaiming that Emmanuel David is still God, still should be recognized as such. Matthias predicted that fire from the sky would still eventually destroy David's enemies. He wrote, I think Mount Timp uh, Timpanogos is going to land on Manti. It will be picked up and dropped on Manti. He also added, I'm guessing for legal reasons, that he was not personally proposing to do anything destructive. I'm not going to drop anything on anybody, but God will. <laughs> You'll see. Uh, David's going to show up in the sweetest pair of fucking socks you've ever seen and drop a mountain on your city. Uh, Gil Hibben uh, went on to become a renowned knife maker. Uh, let's talk about what he, what he uh, is up to. Um, Hibben told a reporter in 2000, referring to the other former members, I don't want to talk to those people ever again as long as I live. Uh, if you're a big fan of knives, particularly throwing knives, you may very well recognize Gil's name. Uh, Gil designed the first line of Browning hunting knives in 1968. He designed the American Kempo knife for Ed Parker, dude we met in uh, the Bruce Lee suck. Ed when Ed invited Bruce to the International Karate Championships as part of an exhibition of his skills, which would lead to his career in Hollywood. Uh, Gil also designed the famous Rambo knife used in Rambo and Rambo 3. His knives have been used in over 37 films, including several Star Trek films uh, where he designed several Klingon knives. He, uh, he owns the company Hibben Knives, uh, currently the president of the Knife Makers Guild, a member of Blade Magazine's Cutlery Hall of Fame. From cult member to America's number one knife guy. That's, that's kind of terrifying. And that's all for today's Time Suck Timeline. 
Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. We covered a lot today. Took a trip back to a brief study of some of Mormonism's early beliefs that evolved uh, to produce isolated, sometimes, you know, uh, violent fundamentalists that believe that they can do anything they want because God's on their side. Or in the case of Emmanuel David, that they are God. And if you're wondering, what about polygamy? Did Emmanuel take uh, a bunch of extra wives on? No, I maybe, not sure. I think there may have definitely been some kind of polygamy going on within the cult, especially when they lived in Manti, but nothing was ever said explicitly. Uh, I just thought it was important to cover it because the early practice of polygamy and then the official banning of it seems to be the main reason a lot of fundamentalist sects broke away from the main church. Sects established a long tradition of Mormons breaking away to form their own Mormon cults, you know, cults like Emmanuel David's. Uh, Emmanuel David changed his name from Charles Bruce Longo to Emmanuel David because he believed himself to be a prophet of God. Many times he went on to claim to be God, Jesus, the Holy Ghost, all rolled up into one, uh, all while racking up enormous hotel bills, eating fancy French food, having his followers scam people out of money, weird shit for God to do. Once a devoted Mormon, the LDS church decided in 69 that David's behaviors were too far out there, especially when David demanded that his community, you know, pay a tithe to him, not the church. Once excommunicated, David really got going. He started his own commune with friends, which eventually became the family of David, sent his followers on insane and pointless missions like going to D.C. to wait for over a year for the government to collapse, have him sleep on sidewalks while he lived in hotel rooms where he kept his seven children inside the room at almost all times, continually indoctrinating them into believing he was God. God liked living in a hotel room and fantasizing about sock shopping trips. 1977, FBI agents investigated the group's fundraising and at least one member was convicted of wire fraud, possibly two. Probably fearing that the FBI was closing in on him, Emmanuel David decided to commit suicide. 1978, leaving God's wife and seven kids to fend for themselves with no money, no life skills, no ability to defend for themselves as poor abuse. Ultimately, murdered children were described as bright, well-dressed, very polite by a family friend. They had absolute faith in their father and his godly power. And that faith sadly led all but one of them to their demise. Those who still belong to the family of David believe that the star of David belongs to Emmanuel, not to Jesus, or I guess to both since David was Jesus, I think. I don't know. He claimed so many things about being God. It's hard to keep it all straight. And as recently as 2008, some of his followers still out there, still believing, still waiting for him to move mountains and return. What a sad way to spend the rest of their days. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Emmanuel David couldn't have been a prophet or God with a name like Bruce Longo. So he and his wife went full biblical and changed their names to Emmanuel and Rachel. Even named one of their poor kids, David, David. Other members of their cult would follow suit, change their names to biblical names, and then change their names again when Emmanuel David announced that uh, his three best friends were clearly archangels. Then later they would change their names again, professing to be the reincarnated spirits of Old Testament prophets like Moses, other biblical figures. Nobody, nobody likes to fuck around more with name changes than this weird little cult. Number two, while David may have actually believed he was God, he definitely believed that having other people think he was God could make him rich. He seemed to be mostly in it for the money, for all that sweet sock money. Sock money. Uh, David used his gift of bullshitting people to get his followers to pay for him to hang out in hotel rooms for, for years. While they worked and sent in tithes, he'd fantasize about mansions, yachts, shopping trips, and of course, you know, socks. Number three, August 3rd, 1979. Terrible, crazy day for the residents of Salt Lake City after horrified onlookers watched Rachel David throw her children off a balcony. Then they started to taunt her to throw herself off the balcony and then she did. And then I imagine as this happened at roughly 7.30 in the morning downtown, a lot of them 
went on to work that day. What a fucking crazy day that would have been. Would have been a wee bit hard to focus on your job after witnessing all that, after chanting for Rachel to jump. Number four, the David family cult, but one of many to pop out of the world of the FLDS. The beliefs of Mormon fundamentalists have led numerous times to outbursts of messianic thinking. As Mormonism continues to grow, there will undoubtedly be more cults to come. Number five, something new. Feeding off of number four, another Mormon fundamentalist cult we uh, touched on in this episode that we may want to suck someday is the Latter-day Church of Christ, also known as the Kingston Clan, the Kingston Group, and the Order. It has roughly 3,500 members based in Salt Lake City, and they do still practice polygamy. And according to a 2011 Rolling Stone article, they are the most powerful polygamous cult in America and one of the most dangerous. The order runs what some investigators believe to be one of the largest organized crime operations in Utah. On the surface, the operation seems legit. From Salt Lake, the order controls some 100 businesses spread out over the Western states. From a casino in California to a cattle ranch in Nevada to a factory that makes lifelike dolls in Utah. Over 75 years, as of 2011, the Kingstons had amassed a fortune worth an estimated $300 million. And according to many who've left the order, they've made most of that money illegally. The cult allegedly exploits many of its members as virtual slave labor, hides the profits from tax collectors, echoes of Tony and Susan Alamo there. Children born into the clan supposedly make up much of the labor force. Girls, many of them teen brides, who have supposedly been forced into arranged polygamous marriages, answer phones at the order's law office, bag groceries at its supermarket, tend to the clan's many, many children. Boys work in the cult's coal mine or stack boxes at standard restaurant supply, a massive discount store that the order owns. And they are not paid in cash, but in scrip, an arcane form of credit used by Mormon pioneers that can only be redeemed at company stores. If the order doesn't have it, the clan teaches, we don't need it. Should we suck these shady fuckers? More law of consecration and united order and polygamy bullshit? Old ways of the church, they just, uh, they won't seem to totally die. They keep spiraling out and creating more cult, cult, cult. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Emmanuel David cult has been sucked. Cult, cult, cult. Suck, suck, suck. So weird. Uh, I found it very entertaining. Hope you did as well. Ah, oh, man, these, these cults, they always get me. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Our own little cult here, putting everything together. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Sophie Fact, Sorceress Evans, Bitelixer. Always kicking out new Time Suck app updates. Logan Art, Warlock, Keith, Kate, Bad Magic Baroness, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. The Keith. Uh, thanks to the over 22,000 people who've joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Hope you're having fun in there. Thanks to Liz Hernandez and the All Seen Eyes uh, for running that curious fa- uh, Cult of the Curious Facebook page. And thanks also to the wonderful weirdos having fun on Discord. Uh, thank you, Beefsteak. Almost 8,000 on Discord now. Easy to link over to our Discord channel from the Time Suck app. And thanks to all you space editors for playing the Time Suck trivia on the app. Uh, C. Gallagher 3 currently leading round three with 5,343 points uh, with this week's and next week's trivia still to go. So someone could still catch him. Uh, round four starting on October 5th. Next week, we return to some more true crime with the Boston Strangler. I can't believe we haven't uh, sucked the Boston Strangler yet. It's come up a lot in the secret suck, I think. Uh, many residents of Boston between June 14th, 1962 and July of 1964 lived in fear of a man the newspapers dubbed the Boston Strangler, who seemed to knock on women's doors, force his way into their homes, then murder them in gruesome ways. 
Many of the details were printed in the papers, riling Boston to a state of near hysteria and panic. Police in five jurisdictions scrambled to track down every known pervert, petty criminal, person with a history of mental illness who could have possibly been responsible for these crimes. And then 11 women would die before the police landed on Albert Salvo, who confessed to everything. Case closed, right? Not necessarily. Irregularities in the crimes, gaps in DeSalvo's story, and the pressure on authorities to solve, to solve the case, excuse me, led some to believe that DeSalvo uh, not responsible for most of the murders. Uh, why would DeSalvo confess to crimes he didn't commit? Uh, was DeSalvo the monster he initially claimed to be? How did the Strangler get into women's homes even though they knew there was a sadist out on the streets? All that and more on next week's sucks. Uh, next week's suck. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. All right, since last week's updates were, uh, you know, long and heavy, uh, keeping today's a little shorter and lighter, uh, at least a le- less polarizing. One of the updates actually is, is quite heavy, but in a good way. Uh, the American Riots emails still continue to pour in with perspectives on all sides. A lot of great job emails, a lot of, uh, you nailed it. Uh, also a lot of, uh, man, you fucked up. <laughs> also a lot of, uh, yeah, you missed this, uh, you missed that. He didn't explain that right, he didn't explain this. Uh, um, you know, and also a lot of like, oh, but you get it. All, all kinds of messages. Uh, the national discussion, of course, continues, but it doesn't have to continue here today in a place I know many of you come to for uh, some needed psychological escapism, escape uh, to escape from the 24-hour news cycle uh, that is often so negative, which I do understand very well. I often need it as well. Uh, so let's escape and let's start with the Cummins Law update. But first, I did find a very cool unbiased website to help with voting this year that I keep meaning to pass along. All I wanted to do uh, a little while ago, was figure out where various politicians stood, like actually stood, not where their websites may say they stand. Uh, in the coming U.S. November elections here in America, and it really bummed me out. It was super fucking hard uh, to figure that out. And then I finally found this website, procon.org. Going to put a link in the presidential election platform con- comparison, or to that, uh, in the episode description. Uh, they, they compare the Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, and Green Party candidates' platforms. And it's just super straightforward and easy. They list out 69 Yes, exactly, 69. Hello, Savannah. Uh, issues like, should the U.S. continue to build a border wall? Uh, should the U.S. switch to a Medicare for all healthcare system? Uh, should fracking be allowed? Should the Electoral College be abolished? Should federal taxes be increased? Should we use private prisons or should the use of private prisons continue? Should assault weapons be banned? Should abortion be legal? And on and on and on and on. And you can click on each issue to learn more about it through a thorough explanation. You, you can find links to find out where each candidate stands, where, you know, they talk about it in their own words or based on their voting record or whatever. And there's just no editorializing, no spin that I can find. Real basic website uh, meant to have as little personality as possible, which I like in this case. Not going to tell you who to vote for. Uh, just want to pass along a place to better educate yourself so you make the best choice for yourself. Uh, if you, and if you know of uh, an even better site, please let us know. Uh, and again, link in the episode description. Now let's get to this first message, a Cummins Law. Super sucker Sean Shomo writes, fucking Cummins Law update. Greetings, suck master flex. I would like to inform you that I, a stupid meat sack space lizard, sent his first rendition of this email to the wrong place. Please help other slow space lizards by helping us know where to send these updates. Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Especially since Pandora plays your podcast in reverse. Huh? Weird. Not sorry for the long email. Your fault for not telling me the first time. Recently discovered your podcast a month ago after having been a fan of your comedy for quite some while. Never been to a show. Hope you come through Chattanooga, Tennessee sometime after the plague ends. All right, update. So I drive a lot, like forty to 60,000 miles a year a lot. 
started listening to your podcast, heard about the Cummins Law bullshit and thought, how do these imbeciles get Cummins Law so often? And I now join the ranks of these imbeciles. Was listening to the Baba Yaga and you kept singing, toss a coin to your witcher. I've seen the show. My brain slowly becomes OCD about needing to sing along throughout the show. Well, in the mornings, I like to get breakfast at a drive-thru. Now, most of the time, I just pause the podcast and order, but for some reason that day, I just turned it down so I could barely hear it. Lady comes on, hi, may I take your order? And I respond with, yes, can I get a number seven with a toss a coin to your witcher? Oh, valley of plenty. Oh, valley of plenty. Oh, oh. I immediately pop back into reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Realize what just happened. Uh, so I finished the uh, order. Um, usually you get responded with your total. I get nothing dead silence. I see the total pop up on the screen, pull around. I get to the window and this lady looks at me like I'm covered in Yahim Kroll special sauce. Just this fucking seriously, dude, of a face. Needless to say, I will always remember to pause the suck now. Love the podcast. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Thanks, Sean Shomo. Well, thank you, Sean. Thanks for your message. It's quite a visual. I'm sure they were like very, very confused. Thanks for the laughs, for enjoying the show, and for reminding me to start watching The Witcher again. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh, valley of plenty. Uh, next up, a real good decision was recently made by Top Shelf Sack. I will, even though he did send his name, choose to leave as anonymous. He writes, Lucifina can lick my hairy meat sack. Hey, Dan, <laughs> just wanted to send an email to let you know that I have just listened to the sex suck while sitting in my car waiting to drive off a cliff. And I heard you say that you will be my cunt any day. <laughs> as a throwaway as it may have been, well, this as well as all the other listener letters in the past has stopped me. After struggling through a crappy time at work and starting to improve, I got hit with sexual harassment accusations from someone anonymous that took out all the progress I'd started to make. What frustrated me the most is I don't know who it was, yet a lot of other people do. I've been treated like I'm guilty of something I don't even know about. It's ruining me internally because I have nothing but respect for everyone I work with. Yet a comment like this destroyed almost seven years of reputation and work through rumor alone. However, to know that with everything going on in the world, that a community of like-minded people can come together and support one another is truly a beautiful thing. I'm not out of this yet. It'll be a long, shitty, fucked up struggle uh, uh, to get out of the hole I'm in. But I look forward to starting to engage with the Secret Suck community when I have the mental fortitude to reactivate my Facebook profile. Also, try as I might, I cannot remember the term for someone making an obvious comment in order to get praise. Can you refresh my mind? Uh, that is commenting, this is so bad and shouldn't happen on like a video of animals being trapped in fires, etc. Thanks for everything, guys. Well, thank you, dude. Uh, so glad you chose not to end it. And virtue signaling is the term you're looking for. For a lot of, more and more all the time, I think, uh, virtue signaling. Uh, sorry you're having a real, real rough time. Uh, hope things turn around for you soon. And if you keep working hard, keep pushing forward, don't give up. I do believe odds are things will get better. Uh, also, I've been de-stressing lately with a meditation app called Waking Up with Sam Harris. I think it's so good. Uh, he'll, he'll let you access all the content for free if times are tough uh, as well. So I uh, hope that helps if you choose to check it out. Hail Nimrod. Now another Cummins Law message from someone, some funny sucker who didn't leave their name. They wrote, God damn it, Dan. I just started listening to Suck 121, D.B. Cooper. I got around the 310 mark. My boss walked into the office. He stopped dead as your voice penetrated the silence with, oh man, I'm gonna suck you off today. I'm gonna suck you so hard. I'm gonna suck your knowledge ween. Yep, he went red. Started laughing with wide eyes, then very carefully went out the door. Damn it, Dan. Damn you to Nimrod's butthole. Much love. Much suck. Much suck to you, anonymous sucker. Sorry, not sorry for making shit super weird with your boss. Uh, Hail Lucifina. And now one more. 
One more today from Spaces or Ron, a fine meat sack. As a shout out to you, Ron writes, hello to the Time Suck crew. This is your loyal Spaces or Ron. I just wanted to write in for a possible shout out to an awesome meat sack and fellow sucker. We connected on the Cult of the Curious Facebook page a while back and have pretty much kept in touch every day since. She's a high school psychology, world history, and sociology teacher. She's a great mom and a great human in general. She may not be Polish, but she is uh, redheaded and Jewish, and that's almost as bad. Ew, JK, oh my heck. Their words, not mine. <laughs> but you know the joke. Uh, her birthday is September 23rd, and I know she would love a shout out by one of her favorite podcasters and comedians. Her name is Stephanie Campbell or Soup because of Campbell. You get it. Thanks in advance if you're able to make this happen, and thanks for the content. Hail Nimrod, praise Bojangles, praise Triple M. Get over there, Lucifina, or get over here. Oh, sorry, that changes a lot. And keep on sucking. P.S. I am not sorry for this long email. Well, thank you, Ron, and happy belated birthday, Stephanie. Uh, Ron sent it in on time. That's my fault. Uh, happy happy birthday, Stephanie Soup Campbell. Uh, adorable nickname. You sound lovely. Uh, keep being an awesome mom. Don't let uh, Ron give you too much shit for being a ginger, and keep teaching world history, please. Have so much love and respect for teachers. Such a noble profession. Please keep it up. Uh, the world needs you. And thanks, everyone, for your messages and for c- continuing to listen uh, to this show. And that's all for today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for continuing to rate and review Time Suck Meat Sacks. Appreciate it. I keep seeing those pop up. It helps us. Uh, more scared to death Tuesday night. More is we dumb on Wednesday. More incredible feats Monday through Friday. Don't start a cult this week in a sad attempt to make all that sweet suck money and keep on sucking. Thanks for coming back to Emmanuel David's House of Socks. We got some new socks in today. Oh, we got unicorn socks. We got uh, red and beige socks, gray socks, uh, pink socks. <laughs> you get it. Uh, we got blue and poodle poodle socks. We got a uh, this looks like a lizard skin sock with maybe some wool. Uh, we got a we got a kid sock. We got some purple socks. We got uh, some green socks. Uh, maybe not a, a gator skin socks. We got some yellow socks. We got oh look at this one. <laughs> we got some red and green and white Christmas socks. Oh, we got a we got a crystally sock here that's made out of quartz, I believe. Oh, we got so many fucking socks! When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.